we're not doing that. <laughs> Jesus, Kyle, we're we're changing up the format. We're trying something new. That's right. Um, yeah. So um, I don't know which one of these movies do you want to start with. I, I figured we'd start with Knowing. Yeah. Um, but Signs chronologically did come first. So I'd rather get Knowing out of the way. <laughs> you want to get that piece of shit? Just out of get the way that piece first. of shit out of the way. <laughs> Yeah, so, hmm, what about knowing is worth commenting on? Um, Kyle, tell me about Ezekiel. Like, what what do you know of Ezekiel from the the Bible? Um, I didn't, so I didn't pay attention in school. I paid even <laughs> less attention in, in, uh, in church. So, uh, I think Ezekiel, I can't even remember, I'm guessing that's New Testament. I think Ezekiel is New Testament, which is far more doomsday- that's a, there's a lot more scarier shit going on in that that New Testament. Um, old Old Testament's got some rough stuff, but yeah, I, I can't really speak to Ezekiel. Isn't the Old Testament where God is just constantly beating humanity's <sighs> ass? He's just nah. like just wrecking people's shit just for funsies. He did make things miserable for Job. I do remember that. Uh, he did uh, bring on the flood, and then <laughs> he did. <laughs> Wipe out the firstborn uh, Egyptians uh, for a bit. Did bring some plagues and such for them, but yeah, that old that Old Testament guy. That's that's a whole other monotheisms have some things to say about the Old Testament God as well. So I'm not I'm not too sure. He he was a wrathful fella. I'll just yeah. put it that way. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, but that being said, um, welcome to episode. I believe this is two hundred and ten. Of the nice. Catching Up on Cinema podcast, uh, I am Trevor, and uh, this is my co-host Kyle. He's—I'm sorry—he's busy petting a dog right now, so I just—I did his intro for him. Uh, but he is indeed Kyle, um, and yeah, I guess this is officially episode two ten. Uh, although you may have noticed, we don't generally number our episodes. We have well over three hundred something posted, so our numbering system is completely borked. Um, don't don't put any stock in any numbers I toss out there today. But uh, yes, uh, this is episode 210 of Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, and as you may have noticed by our rolling intro this time, uh, we are changing up the format as we did last week as well. Um, we had intended uh, to do a collaboration uh, with the Super Media Bros podcast. Uh, however, there was a little bit of a scheduling conflict. So the hope is that we'll have them back next week. Um, but in their absence, uh, we'll continue on by aping their format uh, just a little bit. Um, if you're not familiar, the Super Media Bros podcast uh, often does, uh, does <laughs> holy shit, <laughs> often does uh, a, a little show format called Cult Cinema Showdown. Um, so in that format, generally uh, two cult cinema films uh, with some form of connection, sometimes flimsy between the two of them. Uh, are both reviewed and pitted against one another. Uh, so we're actually going to be adopting that format for today's episode. And uh, we have a pick that actually comes to us from uh, the host of the Super Media Bros podcast, um, which would be M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. Uh, and to complement that pick, I uh, selected <laughs> Alex Proyas's Knowing uh, from the year 2009. So uh, in terms of a showdown, uh, this is... This is kind of the equivalent of, like, I don't know, uh, Larry Holmes and Jerry Cooney, or Michael Spinks and Jerry Cooney, or George Foreman and Jerry Cooney. Uh, 
apologies to Jerry Coon. He seems like a lovely fella, but you know, in those three instances, sorry, sorry, Mister Cooney, it just it just wasn't going to happen. So what, what the analogy here, in case you, you're not up on your boxing history, is knowing is going to lose. <laughs> like there ain't no way. Uh, Science is far and away the superior film between these two. So the the cinema showdown aspect of this conversation is not worth putting any sort of time into but the intention is that we'll be reviewing both of these films here so kyle how do we how do we get started with this well um i guess we should kind of uh, just i feel like we should just kind of talk about where nick cage was in 2009 as he is going to be our first uh, our first person uh and this was the first of what is going to be this is this his this is his i'd say this is his second act because now our current Nick Cage is, is third act Nick Cage, but this is this is full blown second act Nick Cage, which is hot garbage by the handfuls. Like it's just he's putting out four movies a year and they all suck. And then occasionally you might get one that's decent. Yeah, so the the career, the long storied career of one Nicholas Cage uh, is that's a podcast unto itself. In fact, Correct. I, I we've almost done it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we've we've almost done it. We've done entire months called uh, Catching Up on Cage uh, in the past, um, where we've reviewed Nicolas Cage films of varying degrees of quality. Um, I remember when we first started doing podcasting, I don't know if it still exists, but there was a podcast that I was following on the Twitter that exclusively reviewed Nicolas Cage films, and the man has a very dense filmography, so you could conceivably carry that on for quite a while. Uh, if you spaced out those episodes, but in terms of acts, did did you say this is second act Cage? Yeah, uh, because I think the last good movie he made was Lord of War at this point, which was two thousand five. So yeah, after this, you've got next National Treasure two, Bangkok Dangerous, Knowing G Force, and then he picks it back up. I think he ends his second act pretty well with Bad Lieutenant, and then it's just crap, 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 crap frozen ground crap crap it's just it's all the way to left behind which is 2014 and then honestly i think the last decent thing he did um we we did um the frozen ground which was not not the best but i think from bad lieutenant 2009 maybe until mandy i think it's a good it's a good little stretch there where it's just crap yeah i see his career is it, it's so sprawling that it's difficult to like separate things into sagas or acts as you call them. See, I I was raised on the Dragon Ball, so I think of things in terms of sagas. Kyle uses the word act, but the same meaning. But I, I don't know. I'd almost argue this is like third act Cage because in my mind it's like there's pre Oscar Cage, like mm-hmm. pre pre Academy Award for Best Actor Cage, and then post oscar cage where he was doing con air and face off and snake Mm -hmm. eyes like like big big gaudy hollywood big budget films and stuff Mm -hmm. and then you get him kind of slowly segueing more towards slightly eccentric fare but then in the in this era in the late 2000s like I don't know what was going on if like maybe he had purchased his islands by then but like the the overall quality of his big dumb Hollywood pictures started to diminish like very seriously because a lot of those nineties movies, as dumb as some of them were, they, they were very high concept and very 
they had strong directors backing them and they they had a soul whereas some of his his late 2000s fare was just like mm, yeah. this is this is no bueno man <laughs> yeah because he's been doing pretty well recently mandy uh spider-man uh into the spider-verse and then color out of space which was pretty decent and then what i thought was going to be the movie we were going to cover um Willie's uh, Wonderland, but instead it was Prisoners <laughs> of the Ghostland. Um, I yeah. didn't get to see Primal, which looked like it was going to be a bit fun. He's picking. Oh, more it's f- not. It's, it's not. not okay. Yeah, Willie's Wonderland. I'd still like to see Pig was excellent. I think probably one of his better films in the past ten years. Um, and he's got a couple more coming out here. Uh, he's got a western coming out here pretty soon. Yeah, the old way. Um, I've been seeing that advertised. Uh, the the thing with Nick Cage like pretty consistently since the 2000s or maybe his entire career actually is that the man is always working like regardless of the quality of his films it it does vary quite wildly from picture to picture point is he's constantly working so just through simple math you can you can determine that some of these are going to be great some of these are going to be pig or some of these are going to be mandy not all of them are like for every pig there will be a jujitsu <laughs> for every mandy there will be a primal uh, but you know the point is he's going to keep working and you, we all can't take our eyes off him because he just is that sort of magnetic screen presence that you just don't find all the time um which is actually what brings wh- what brought me to knowing uh in the year 2009 in the year that it was released um I had zero enthusiasm for this movie. I was like, I would think I was in college uh, when this movie came out or had just graduated. Uh, Point is, I was living with roommates um, and a lot of BitTorrent was being exploited in that apartment complex. Um, Probably not just our unit. I'll just assume that. Um, And my roommate uh, in 2009 was a Nick Cage fanatic. Uh, He would watch literally anything the man did. Um, so he took it upon himself to obtain this film, and I watched it with him on his laptop, um, and it was all right. That's kind of that's kind of the most I can say about knowing. So I did say that the show format today is supposed uh, to be an homage to Super Media Bros's uh, cult cinema showdown, I, and also the theme this month is guilty pleasures. Th- I would barely qualify this film as a pleasure on my part i picked the fucking movie but i picked it mostly because it has a lot of similarities to signs in small ways like they're Mm -hmm. very very different films but they do have similarities so i was thinking more just like something that would complement signs rather than a film that i actually like Um, well to keep on the fighting thread, one thread, I mean, clearly that is between signs and knowing is there's a bit of a religious thread, but it manifests in entirely different ways. But I think the biggest thing that these two films have in common is it has a small, blonde-haired white boy who you want to stalk and slap. Like, they're just the most annoying kids. <laughs> nice reference, by the way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Diaz brothers. Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, look at the Diaz brothers. <laughs> look, at, look at the Diaz brothers, folks. They are. It's a technique. Fuck off. They are. <laughs> they are God's gift to fighting. Uh, their fights are fun to watch, but their talking outside of the octagon is what really makes the Diaz brothers great. <laughs> yeah, actually, the 
um, Nate actually just uh, was freed from the UFC, if memory serves. Oh, I think good his for contract, him. I think he was released from his contract or it expired. So he is a free agent. I'm expecting him to pop up in the Bare Knuckle League. <laughs> oh, good. Maybe he can stop, you know, using food stamps because uh, fucking Dana White is a piece of shit. It, noted piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> human cherry tomato, Dana White. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, not a good person. Wife slapper, and basically, he's doing what what uh, what people did to blues musicians back in the day. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna record your record, and you're gonna sign away your rights. I get nine. I get all the rights to your your music, basically. Yeah. No, he's a piece. Actually, of shit. that 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 is a solid analogy. That is essentially how the UFC is run. What a waste. Yeah, I digress. Uh, yeah, but anyway, um, we will get to signs when we get to it. But I guess we're going to dive full steam into uh, knowing. Uh, so, as Kyle had pointed out, uh, this movie is headlined by Nicolas Cage at a uh, curious time in his career, um, where again this pattern of a couple of brilliant ones, a couple of really bad ones, uh, was very much in full effect at this point in his career. Just in the year two thousand nine alone. He made four movies, knowing uh, starting off the year, G Force, where he he was voicing a hamster, I believe. Um, but then, amidst all this noise and chaos, he also did Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, which both Kyle and I absolutely endorse as a fantastic Love it. film. Love it. Yeah, it's a it's a Werner Herzog film. It's incredible. It's terrific. Yeah. And then he followed that up with a voice role in Astro Boy. <laughs> so, so it's just like it's it's madness absolute madness but you know the man keeps working and if he keeps churning the shit out eventually he's going to get it right and knowing was not getting it right but bad lieutenant absolutely was but uh the director of this film is alex proyas uh who is an australian director um greek heritage as far as i know um but he's Australian, and his filmography is not very dense, um, but it is one that is fairly well known. Like, like pretty much every time he steps up to the plate, most people take notice. Um, kind of first became known to the mainstream in the form of The Crow uh, from 1994, um, which is kind of a cult film unto itself. As far as I know, it was very, very successful financially. Um kind of has a, a, a cult following such that there have been many attempts uh, to remake it, uh, even though there were several shitty direct-to-video sequels, but there have been many attempts to try to get a remake of this one off the ground. Uh, but the big one uh, for a lot of folks in our relative age range is probably Dark City uh, from 1998. Um, I have mixed feelings about that movie. Uh I used to really, really love it, but then I rewatched it a couple of years ago, and I didn't love it. <laughs> I thought it was good. I thought it, it was pretty good, but I was like, I, th- I think you need, I think you need to be a little younger to fully dive into this one and, and embrace it. It's kind of like Dune, uh, David Lynch's Dune, where it's a visual masterpiece. Like it, it yeah. is unparalleled. Like they're, it just, it's an amazing film to look at, but. The story itself is just not that great. And sorry, uh, the the Dune story, guys, it's it's pretty fucking boring. It's not an exciting story. <laughs> there's a reason let that one breathe. <laughs> there's a reason why that director was attached to that IP. It's because this isn't a very exciting story, but he can make it look beautiful. 
yeah in in terms of look and feel uh the most recent iteration of dune is quite good uh it is beautiful to look at beautiful to listen to um kyle's objection to it i think comes down to like if you break it down into bullet points of what actually happens it's it's very thin (laughs) it's a little thin but you know i'll just say this much when i saw it in the theater i saw that movie imax by the way i've only done that like two times in my whole life um i quite enjoyed it um but moving on uh garage days i have no fucking clue what that is from 2002 um but one that i think is it you who kind of likes this one i I robot from 2004 yeah uh i do actually like that that was the the last little bit of the fun will smith that we got we haven't gotten it and (laughs) haven't gotten fun will smith in years i was actually just watching men in black the other night uh just a couple days ago because i miss fun will make will smith great again uh, yeah. yeah, these days he's doing Emancipation, uh, which isn't being promoted very much. But yeah, so would you call this the last woo or the last haha? Yeah, yeah, iRobot's like the last woo because I am legend. I am legend isn't even. Do you don't even get a woo or a haha in there? It's oh. yeah. See, yeah, I kind of expect that, or I need that from my Will Smith. I, I need a woo. I need a ha ha. I yeah. need. I need. A, I need both of those in sequence. In fact, but yeah, I guess you'd call iRobot the last woo. Um, and then five years later, uh, Alex Proyas brings us Knowing. Um, <clears throat> now, like I said, I went into this movie uh, having virtually no hype. I did watch it on a fucking laptop in a in a shitty apartment so i didn't exactly watch it in the best way but i did remember walking away from it thinking like that was okay like like it 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 needs it needs uh, some more juice uh, in terms of audience engagement but it is somewhat admirable that it, it goes the places that it goes i'm not sure i appreciate the way it chooses to go in those places but just the fact that they follow through with what they're promising um, is sadly something that I don't I don't expect from blockbuster cinema all that often. Um, can we try something a little different? Because I really, please don't want to go through knowing front to back. Uh, okay, yeah, because that's just just too much. Um, yeah, of but maybe we could try just like some Monday morning quarterbacking. I feel like there's uh, enough of a story, a fun enough story here that you could definitely critique the film and think of some things that you would done different some highlights some things that you did enjoy about the film because there are some highlights for this film for me yeah they weren't supposed to be funny but they were (laughs) there were things that were funny (laughs) um and i do think i mean there are some legit good ideas and good execution um with the four horsemen uh whatever you want to call those those fellas there um but yeah overall this movie is it's it's not good i've seen worse (laughs) I've definitely seen worse. Yeah. Um, and But Steph and I were watching it, and she's like, this is going to be stupid. She's like, I'll just watch Knowing. It's it's a stupid Nick Cage movie. I'll watch it with you. I'm like, okay, you can watch it with me. Wow, I'm shocked. Yeah. yeah. Um, she can get behind the stupid shit. She can get behind those um, if, it, if she knows it's going to be silly. But we got through the other side, and I'm like, I mean, it wasn't great, but it could have been a lot. It could have been a lot worse, John. <laughs> a lot worse. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of my feeling. Like, I I do want to own up to the fact that, like, the official theme for this month is supposed to be guilty pleasures. But like I said, I don't especially take pleasure in watching this movie. I think Kyle just kind of summed up 
my general feelings towards it is that if I hear somebody completely outright shitting on this one, I probably would defend it. Just be like, you know, it's not it's not terrible. Like yeah. like it's not good, but it's it's not the worst fucking movie you've ever seen. No, um, not by a long shot. The the standard. I mean, that's what's kind of crazy is you can go back to these objectively not good movies from the aughts and you just when you leave it you're just like oh that was absolutely i kind of want to go back and see smoke and aces because i think movies have gotten progressively worse like bad movies have gotten progressively worse they either have no soul to them or it's just just absolute shit and people have just gotten good at doing uh uh covers and trailers to the point where we're just tricked into watching shit like oh we've already got our 299 on amazon what we don't have to give you a good movie but I am kind of curious to go back to some of these older movies that we've shat on and be like, that wasn't as bad as I remember. Because this isn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. Yeah, I don't have any research to, to back what you're talking about. <laughs> but I, I do get that vibe every once in a while as well. Just because I, I have watched some of those direct-to-streaming movies on Amazon or Netflix. And, and there is... There is some sort of intangible quality or lack thereof present in them that feels disposable. Where it's like, what I'm looking at is shot well, it's lit well, it's performed well, and yet some part of my soul is telling me that this was cranked out and is not meant to be retained. Like, this oh. is meant to be in one ear, out the other. Whereas something like this, something like knowing does feel curated. It does feel like, like, like for instance, I, I remembered this movie. I have seen this movie exactly one time in 2009 on a shitty laptop in my friend's apartment, and yet I still remembered quite a lot of it. And it's not even a good movie, but I remembered it. I yeah. can't say that for a lot of direct-to-streaming movies I've seen in recent days. Like, like uh, It's a weird example, but um, Michael B. Jordan in that Without Remorse movie, um, it's some Tom Clancy something or other. I don't remember. I remember like two shots from that whole fucking thing, and they were probably in the trailer, and and yeah. that's unfortunate because like that's that's a whole movie, that's a whole two hour experience that I took in. Somebody who generally appreciates film, regardless of the quality, and I barely fucking remember a single shot of it. Dude, I watched Uncharted, and if you put a gun to my head, I'd be like, "Uh, The Rock does cocaine." You're like, nope, <laughs> it's pain and game. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Pain and Gain two times <laughs> in my whole life, and I know that movie more weller. I know that weller. More weller. More weller. Hey, I, said, I said dues earlier. It's, <laughs> it's that kind of show today, folks. Yeah. We're drinking early. It's, yeah. it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's Super Bowl Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, early. It's just a spike seltzer. I'm not even hitting it hard today. Um, but yeah, I I think you're on to something with that. But um, being as you, you're the one with the game plan uh, for this particular discussion, how about you get us rolling and, and I can try to play off of you? Yeah, um, I think we should start with our gripes with the movie. I think that's a that's a good place to start because we can we can end on a higher note and leave leave the podcast with a little bit of like, you know what, that wasn't too bad. Um, I th- I think this movie takes a little too long. Um, we do set up, I think it's, oh, um, yeah, I just think the movie was a bit long. Uh, I do understand that we had to kind of set it up, like set up the beginning a little bit, but I feel like it took a long time. Um, I feel like this isn't a very good Nick Cage performance. And I think that there was an opportunity because we have Nick Cage, whose wife, uh, apparently passed away and he's a single dad. 
Um, and we get kind of a fun characterization of him at the beginning. He's you know, we got the telescope, which is that's one of the things that I'm going to be buying for myself once I start making money. Is I am getting a goddamn telescope. But he's grilling hot dogs at nighttime with a little light and his little setup, and he's drinking, and it's so it's just kind of an interesting start to the character. But but then his character is just um, an alcoholic who is unfazed by being an alcoholic. He's I think he won an Oscar for playing an alcoholic. <laughs> I think that was where he got it. I'm like, I just feel like the you have Nick Cage playing an alcoholic. Like, <laughs> dude, that, that's magic. Just, just give me, give me something good. It was just a wasted opportunity, honestly, for his character. I mean, I would, I would agree. Although he does have a handful of line deliveries in this that are brilliant. Oh, like it's, it's only two or three. But they're just magnificent. Yes. It's like those are brilliant cageisms that I I refuse to believe the director had anything to do with that. That was just pure Nick Cage magic. And I'll I'll get to probably my favorite in a second. It's actually one of his earliest lines in the whole movie. Um, Wait, I think I got it. Is it this one? You suck my tongue. Was that it? <laughs> no. <laughs> Not featured in this film, but always oh, appreciated. <laughs> Yeah, Kyle's going to have fun with the soundboard today. It's the only way we're going to get through this shit. But, um, yeah, I, I agree with you on the uh, the the pace of the movie. Uh, it does feel overlong. It is overlong. Uh, it, it, it's two hours long. Um, but when we get to signs, one thing that's interesting to note about M. Night Shyamalan's filmography is that he very seldom tops two hours. Like it's actually something he's mentioned in, in in interviews where he he said that he needs he feels he needs to earn a two hour runtime for most of his films and I think that's a good approach honestly yeah especially considering how dialogue heavy and how like not glacially but how measured the pace of a lot of Shyamalan films tend to be to mm. get that in under two hours actually takes some restraint and some talent. Um, but in the case of uh, Alex Proyas, uh, I feel like the, the movie lacks excitement. It has these spikes where like crazy, crazy, violent, ca- catastrophic things happen. Um, but in between all that, there's actually very little detective work involved. Uh, it doesn't have that, like, I got to know kind of thing that like a conspiracy thriller story should have. Um, which is supposed to be, I guess, the foundation of this, but they figure things out a little too quickly, and also the deduction process is told to us basically through a a single montage and then never challenged going forward. So it leaves us hanging where it's just like, so hang on, we're just going to hang out with these characters, but they're not all that interesting. What what are we doing in between all the the violent bits? And and the answer is very little. which is just which is a, sh- a shame, but also the uh, the horsemen characters, as you referred to them, they're frustrating because they just keep bamfing in and out of the movie, and the whole time you're like, what, what the fuck do they want? Because I don't know until until we get to the very end, I don't know what their deal is, but they keep showing up, and they're very frustrating because the movie the movie doesn't really let them be active participants in things; they just keep popping up. And it's yeah. like, you know, that's not, that's neither scary nor tense nor exciting in any way. It's just frustrating because you're not getting any new information every time they show up. Mm-hmm. They just keep showing up. And it's like, if you're going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, you got to change it up 
in some way. Otherwise, it's going to get very tedious and very boring. And, and it did at some point. Uh, I just want to highlight somebody who did do it brilliantly. Uh, Ari Aster in Hereditary. When the little girl is at her grandmother's funeral, there's that weird guy smiling. And you're like, huh, that was really strange. And then when he comes back, oh, man, that that's how you pace that. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm like, these characters had potential to be very eerie because they do have moments where it's like, oh, that is spooky. Like, But you're right. They, It's just kind of like they just keep doing that. Well, I'm like, well, now it's lost its spookiness. It's not scary anymore. It's not creepy. It's just you keep showing me the same shit. Um, uh, also, kind of a waste of your Ben Mendelsohn. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I was kind of hoping i was like, oh ben Mendelssohn's in here I'm like well this could be fun um honestly i think this movie held him back from being a bigger deal <laughs> moving forward i'm like god damn it you could have just given him a little bit more to do in this <laughs> worth brain <laughs> do you fear it's worth brain <laughs> oh ben Mendelssohn is wasted in this um he actually is an example of uh, how Australian this movie is. Uh, this movie is incredibly Australian, with mm. the exception of Nick Cage and I think the the actor who plays his annoying son. Oh yeah, that kid's um, American. Oh, he. It doesn't matter where he's from. He's fucking yeah. sucks. <laughs> Get that kid out of here. But yeah. yeah, the majority of the cast is Australian. Um, there are a couple instances here and there where I have fun picking up on people trying to cover their accents. Uh, in particular, the teacher. Uh, the beginning of the film, uh, she's not great. I do want to give a shout out to Rose Byrne, uh, yes. who has had a solid American accent she, since she came on the scene. She's been very impressive with her American accent. Yeah, uh, she kind of flew in under the radar in that sense, where she started doing movies with a flattened out American accent at a certain point in her career, to the point that it's just like, wow, uh, probably surprised a lot of people honestly if i if i hadn't read up on it i probably i probably would have been surprised too um actually um i'm struggling to remember her name but the one actress in um the last of us currently um from two and a half men i I believe she's a kiwi um she also gets gets a little bit of an an award for her no she's she's a kiwi um if if you're thinking of the same person that i'm alluding to Uh, i don't know her name um, but she uh, she is very talented at flattening out her accent. Like, for fuck's sake, she was on a weekly sitcom in the U.S. speaking in a flattened out American accent very convincingly. And the vast majority of her filmography, that I'm aware of anyway, um, aside from working with Peter Jackson uh, back in the day, um, she, she's been doing that, and she's always been very, very convincing with it. She's in Detroit Rock City? What? <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. What's your name? Uh, her name is uh, Melanie Linsky, but there I, you go. I'm on IMDb. I can't tell where she's from. It's not saying, but she does have a very long biography. I can tell you that much. Yeah, I'm concerned with her character on The, the Last of Us. I'm like, where is this going? Where is this character going? Because I feel like she's going to be very frustrating. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> you're like, I remember you, you did text me like, yeah, I'm playing a game with this one. It's Spot the Aussies. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd already finished it. I'm like, shit, I should have been doing that. Um, I mean, it was a fun little game just because it's essentially the entire cast. <laughs> like, it's not even a game. It's just like, this is the movie. <laughs> yeah, and I have to agree. I think you're right. This movie, it was it was kind of two things where it's like, one, we're trying to figure this out, and then next we need to stop it. But we figure it out 
almost immediately. He like he gets it, he throws stuff off of his table, and then he figures it out like overnight. Uh, and then he's trying to stop stuff, stop stuff, which he does absolutely none of. Like it, he stops yes. absolutely nothing. Um, but that leads me to he's trying to either get to see his son, and we get this plane crash. This plane crash is kind of an example of uh, what uh, doing green, like how bad green screen can truly be. Like it's kind of incredible how the the Marvels the Marvel movies do so well <laughs> with the green screen because this is bad, but it's also the best. Hi kids, do you know what to do if your clothes catch on fire? It's a stop, drop, and roll, which these characters, uh, rendered in CGI for the most part, uh, this, this, the, the plane crash sequence is probably my favorite sequence in the film. Did you, did you have a favorite sequence in the film? It's probably the most memorable aside from the ending, honestly. Uh, but yeah, th- this is an example of, I guess, over, overly ambitious filmmaking. Uh, because Alex Proyas, uh, I mean, I, I listed off his entire filmography, with the exception of Gods of Egypt, uh, which oh. is his most recent film, and it's also apparently awful. Um, I haven't seen it, but I kind of want to, just because of how bad it looked. I remember the promotion for that. Um, uh, Ger- Gerard Butler in a, a Egyptian power armor. Uh, <laughs> sign me up. Also, it's giant Gerard Butler. I, I believe he's like 10 feet tall in the movie. For fuck's sake, I'm from Egypt, you motherfucker. <laughs> I'm fucking Anubis. <laughs> I'm fucking Anubis. That's pretty good. <laughs> Promises, let my people go. Aku, <laughs> Uh Yeah, that's his most recent film. But the point I'm trying to get to here is that I want to say that Alex Proyas is probably not a brilliant director of actors, um, but he does have a visual sense. Uh, Kyle did mention that Dark City, from a production design and special effects standpoint, is quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. It's very nice to look at. The Crow also has a very distinct look. Uh, It has quite a lot going for it on an aesthetic level. From a performance standpoint, I couldn't tell you... A damn thing about it other than michael wincott uh-huh. wears that hell he wears that hair well and uh. he swings for the fences <laughs> yeah yep. he always does he always does he's like i'm gonna smoke five packs on the set this week <laughs> it's the 90s i don't have much time left <laughs> clock is ticking <laughs> they're either gonna not let me smoke inside anywhere or i'm gonna have a fucking hole in my throat <laughs> Oh, we miss you, Michael. We do. Uh, come we back. Do. Come back. They, Ooh, we're ready we, for you. Maybe he'll play Tom Waits in a biopic. I mean, that would be that'd be fun. I would mm-hmm. watch that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I think really the only way to do that would be to have Tom Waits play Tom Waits um, and make no attempt to de-age him. Just have him as a child be himself. Oh, dude, Jarmish. <laughs> yeah, I could pitch that to Jarmish. I think he could probably get him to do it. <laughs> Yeah, just, just like have a wig or something, but like make no attempt to disguise his age from scene to scene. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty brilliant. Yeah, he'd do it. Yeah, I would watch that. But yeah, Alex Proyas is a director of actors. I don't think that's his chief skill set. I think putting interesting things on the screen, like really stretching special effects budgets, I think that's more where his passions lie. If you look into his filmography, um, like a lot of directors from the 90s, uh, he got his start with music videos um so i want to say that that's probably very very true and the point i'm trying to get to here is that in 2009 
um, off a $50 million budget with Nick Cage headlining your film. I could see him as... I could see Proyas looking at this film and being like, "Oh yeah, we we're gonna we're gonna really try to do some shit with the special effects in this movie." There's only a handful of sequences that demand it, but we're really gonna try to stretch our budget and make something special with these sequences. Only problem, I, I don't think they quite got it. Um, for the time, some of the CGI here is actually pretty decent, um, but the but like Kyle had said, the way it's composited, the way it's incorporated into this one take sequence of Nick Cage running towards this plane crash, you can see the seams, and it it does it does not help to maintain the illusion, uh, unfortunately. So it's like I see what you were trying to do, didn't exactly work out especially well, but it is kind of neat that they tried anyway. But yeah, the execution of it is seriously flawed like there's a lack of uh, like weight uh, to everything where the fire mm. feels very phony uh like all the stunt actors like all the stunt performers who are pretending to be on fire or who are actually on fire there's there's very little like weight or tension to everything it just kind of feels like nick cage is more focused on hitting his marks rather than actually acting you know playing the scene it kind of feels like he's being guided through mm-hmm. waypoints because he has to match the timing of the cinematography and stuff. Yeah, I was going to say this is this scene is bad like bad movie comedy gold the way it plays out which <laughs> is fantastic. But also like this is a like a, a 747 like this is a full blown plane that crashes and goes up into flames but like everybody's still alive. It's the craziest thing. Like everybody's like just like running out of this and we're like they're all dead. Everybody in that plane is dead. <laughs> It's I mean, yeah, it's like we have a, a, a death toll that's comparable to uh, to Flight, um, which is actually another movie that had we not re- reviewed it previously, I'd actually considered this as pairing as like pairing it up with Signs, just because they're also dealing with faith and stuff like that. Mm. Um, very loose connection, but yeah, uh, the plane crash sequence here is meant to be like a, a show-stopping, effects-heavy sequence, but it just doesn't quite stick the landing unfortunately yeah um yeah and then i guess the rest of the film is just him kind of going around doing crazy things but he does have a legit funny moment where he goes to i think he's been following rose burns character and he basically corners her and her dog well he doesn't corner them but he makes a he he makes a chance meeting like he he just kind of bumps into her he's like hey how's it going He's like, hi. He's like, is that your daughter over there? And it's just the creepiest. She's like, why? He's like, oh, it's my son over there with him, with her. I was just wondering. And I'm like, dude, you you really should have asked that in a different way. Because he, I don't know, the way his delivery is like he's tired and horny. (laughs) The way he asks. (laughs) It's really accurate. Very, very accurate. Um, Yeah, it's very awkward, especially when they sit down to have a drink together and he he just goes for the gusto like yeah. like no foreplay he's just like here's my pepe silvia board yeah. <laughs> by the way i know about your mom who is a crazy person who had premonitions i'm gonna bring up all the trauma that you have from your childhood dude there are dudes that have whipped out their dicks at bus stops in front of strangers that have had more finesse than this like the way he does it is just crazy <laughs> 
I mean, it's proper use of your Nick Cage, honestly. But yeah. it, it would have been nice if he had gone a little bigger. Like if he had made more of a scene or something. Oh yeah, but... yeah. For sure. <laughs> just take just take a little bit of that energy from National Treasure Two, uh, where he gets he makes them get in trouble at uh, Buckingham Palace. It's just like just take a little bit of that, sprinkle it on here, just up that crazy. I was thinking more um, the trailer line from 8mm when he's yelling at uh, Anthony Heald. Like, I'm trying to understand! <laughs> just, like, <laughs> just like freaking out and, you know, flipping tables and stuff. But Nick Cage, for his part, like he he does what's asked of him. He, very, he doesn't really cage out, uh, as the kids like to say these days. Um, however, he does have some subtle line deliveries here that, as I said earlier, I do actually really appreciate. Like, my favorite in the whole movie is unfortunately probably from his first scene. Yeah, it, it's from his first scene in the whole movie. So we unfortunately get the best stuff early. Um, his kid is basically like foregoing eating dinner because the kid just declares he's vegetarian suddenly. And meanwhile, Nick Cage is you know, cooking hot dogs and stuff, and, you know, he wants to eat. So, um, and the kid's, like, walking away, and Nick Cage has a... He's drinking wine. He's introduced to us looking at the stars and drinking wine, which, you know, I bet you Nick Cage actually does that yes. <laughs> on any given Sunday night. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he's calling out to his son, and he says, It's Dad's famous Sunday night hot dogs on the run. <laughs> time <laughs> he takes a sip and like before he finishes the sentence yeah it feels very eccentric it feels very nick cage it's it's delightful yeah and and he drinks a lot of alcohol like i do like there is a nice little cut where he's like drinking and watching tv and then we cut to bottles empty and there's half a sandwich on the floor <laughs> yeah but like I needed him working, struggling through some hangovers in this, but we, we just don't get it. Oh, did you catch? Uh, there's a Hemsworth in here. There is a Hemsworth in here for exactly one scene. Uh, yeah. He has one line in the whole fucking movie. But yeah, this is in in the tier list of Hemsworths. Where does Liam fall? He's my number one. He's he's my. He's favorite. your number one. He's my number Holy one. Shit. As far as looks go, I think he's the best looking one. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. I meant talent, but okay, and looks, I'll, I'll accept that. He does have the, you know, conventional handsome young man look. There's a there's a scene of, he's on an episode of Workaholics, and uh, the guys end up going to work for this really bro, they work. They go to work for Dane Cook, basically. It, Dane <laughs> Cook's the character, but it's like a really broy sales thing, where it's like Wolf of Wall Street kind of thing. And um, I was listening to their their podcast, and they're like, "He's really cool, apparently." Which is always you, you always like to hear that. It's just like, "Oh no, yeah. no, they're they're a really cool celebrity." Like he's the nicest guy, and he's just like, "Guys, is it all right if I do a little something here? Yeah, I want to make make myself look ridiculous." And I'm like, "Yeah, totally." So he comes out with like a little goatee, and his hair is slicked back. He's like, "Don't I look ridiculous?" Like he thought he looked stupid. <laughs> they're like, "Dude, you look hot as fuck. Like <laughs> you look so handsome with your hair slicked back like that." It's really kind of funny, but talent-wise, I do think Chris Chris clearly is the uh, the, the most talented. I mean, probably talent, and in terms of dollars earned. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in terms of talent, he's he's turned in good performances outside of Thor. Like like he's he's done good work. Um, he's earned it. But there's like how many? Like three? There's four? three. I think there's three. three. Yeah. The little one, the oldest one. He's the shortest. Uh, he's in. I've only seen him in Westworld, and then he has like a little cameo in 
I think Thor Ragnarok. I think one of those Avengers movies. He's playing Thor in like the stage play, or whatever oh, okay. with okay, Matt Damon. Um, yeah, uh, but he does have a. He is on a funnier die sketch where they do city slickers in Westworld, which is pretty great. It, it's pretty funny. Uh, you should definitely check that out. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, but he's doughy here. I was like, wait, is that is that the Hemsworth? I'm like, yeah, that that is a Hemsworth for sure. It's kind of funny because he was probably like on the cusp of like making his big play in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Thor came out around this time because uh, I want to say Captain America was like 2010 or something. Thor was probably like 2009, 2010 around there. Um, and in Liam's case, I think the first time I took notice of him was he had a small role in The Expendables 2. Um, this will be the second time I mention a hot, young, like, up-and-coming young actor uh, who gets the shaft in an Expendables movie. <laughs> so Glenn Powell uh, for Top Gun Maverick, he was in Expendables 3. He did fuck all in that movie. He climbed an air shaft. Um, and Liam Hemsworth in Expendables 2 uh, gets killed killed to death by Jean-Claude Van Damme, um, thereby kicking off the plot. Um, but that was also around 2009, I believe. Um, but yeah, he would obviously go on uh, to have a decent career, as far as I know, he's doing just fine. Um, but yeah, he's in exactly one scene in this whole movie. I thought he was going to come back. Yeah, yeah I actually, was I back. was thinking that too, just because I recognized him, and it's like, oh, well, I mean, obviously, the, the camera fixated on him for a couple of seconds. He had a line. I assume he'll come back. It's like, well, I guess not. <laughs> it's right. like, never mind. Um, oh, Kyle sent me a picture, and... Uh, yeah, he doesn't look ridiculous. Yeah. He, he looks like Seth Rollins from the WWE. <laughs> he, he looks like, yes, yeah, he looks good. He looks like, like a conventionally attractive young man. He looks yeah. like Ellis from Die Hard. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, but so the reason he's also my favorite Hemsworth is because it's confirmed he's really cool from the Workaholics guys. I'm like, you know what? That That's good enough for me. Apparently, uh, Zach Efron is a sweetheart, and uh, so is... Who's the ugly? Pete Davidson. He's also apparently a real, really sweet guy. Um, so you always like to hear. You always like to hear that. Um, did you have more to say about knowing? Uh, oh, the score, because oh, yeah. I did notice it near the end of the film. I did. I did pick up on the score a little bit, and uh, the composer is somebody I think you're probably familiar with. Yeah, uh, you are too. Uh, although you know, probably not in the same way. But uh, Marco Beltrami. Uh, does the score for this film. Uh, Very, very experienced composer for cinema. Um, Largely does a lot of horror films, um, but he's also dipped his toes into blockbuster cinema. He did uh, Live Free or Die Hard. Um, But I think he's probably most famous for um, the Scream franchise, if memory serves. Um, He he did the scores for, I think, all of those movies. But does he primarily does horror scores but um he he has kind of like a specific flavor to his to his scores a lot of strings a lot of aggressive strings but in this one he gets kind of playful with it like it has some like plinky plunky kind oh. of vibes to it at one point <laughs> it it got uh kind of Danny Elfman-esque at yes. one point yes. near the end but it wasn't like the uh oh, blum, 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 blum. not like that it was more of a <laughs> The big Danny Elfman, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Because Danny Elfman 
uh, kind of around the time of like Batman Returns started to really embrace the choir as being like a huge part of his sound. Um, but then he, I want to say he kind of phased that out a little bit. Um, but yeah, this one has like a, almost like a playful vibe to it at times. There's a couple of like quote action sequences in this. They're not especially action packed. It's usually Nicolas Cage running. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, usually Nicolas Cage running to a thing. Not to do anything, but just to be there. He just wants to see it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually was, uh, an Oingo Boingo song came up in my feed uh, a couple weeks ago. I'm like, I actually think I, can, I might go back and listen to some Oingo Boingo. They're not too bad. The, the song that I was listening to wasn't too bad. Um, but dude, there, I wanted to, to, to get you to weigh in on this. There is a style of jeans that when I see them, I can tell you that decade that the movie came out. And when I saw... So Nick Cage looks... He actually looks pretty great in this movie. Like he looks very healthy. He's very fit. I think it's still some of his real hair at this point. Well, see, I think he was only a couple years removed from Ghost Rider at this okay. point, um, and he was also doing a lot of not necessarily like action-heavy roles, but a lot of a lot of roles that required at least some degree of agility. Gotcha. I mean, like those National Treasure movies required a lot of running. Bangkok Dangerous, Bangkok I'm Dangerous, sure, yeah. Involved, you know, some physicality. Um, actually, a, a potential episode down the road um, next uh, from oh. the year 2007. Um, the ending of that movie is quite something. <laughs> Wait, is that where he's? Is that the car movie? No, it's Drive Angry. That's what I'm like. Yeah, we we reviewed that. Yeah. Um, next is a movie that's kind of a, a running gag between myself and a friend of mine. Um, the ending of that one is kind of mind blowing in how fucking stupid it is. <laughs> and also, there's a special effect that they incorporate into the the action choreography in that film that my friend and I collectively refer to as the womble walk <laughs> if i showed it to you it would un- you would oh, understand well, I mean, but the, the long story short the, the point i'm trying to get to here is the blue jeans that that man wears that nicholas cage wears in next from the year 2007 i want to say are the same kind of jeans that kyle is referencing here Dude, it's it's a it is so much this time period these these jeans like like when we got to the the twenty tens, uh, jeans started to fit again. Like we, <laughs> we we just got jeans that fit again. We 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 came eighties. They were nut huggers. Nineties. It was jinko aughts. They were just the worst. The no form fitting jeans for guys whatsoever. And then we got like no no no. We're just gonna wear pants that fit again. We finally found. The like the big ground between all these different styles, just pants that fit. Um, but yeah, he's definitely wearing uh, just awful, awful pants. But yeah, he was super fit in this movie. Still, yeah, I want to say it was probably leftover conditioning from yeah. from Ghost Rider and Bangkok Dangerous and stuff like that. I mean, just filming in Thailand for a summer probably will take some weight off of you just the yeah. humidity Jesus yeah. Um, but yeah he I don't know how much of his actual hair he was working with at this point but it is worth noting that this was roughly around the time all the memes were starting to surface of like birds nests on top of Nick Cage's head and whatnot because yeah the, his wig game was accelerating quite rapidly around this time period uh I had something for that. I lost it. I'm sorry. That's okay. um, I right, well, you got it. That's high praise. 
Oh, you have the Sandberg one. Oh, you have yeah, the Andy Sandberg one. I, I actually uh, gifted Brad from the Cinema Spod, uh, Cinema Speak podcast. I uh, gifted him the Nick Cage version of the same line. Mm. Uh, so I that's guess we have co ownership. We have co ownership <laughs> of that's high praise. <laughs> oh, love Andy uh, Sandberg. Yeah, I don't. I don't have a whole lot more to say about this one, but I suppose we should talk about the ending uh, because uh, that is really really the only thing to remember this movie for just because they go for it so the whole movie basically has been a series of catastrophes wherein uh, Nicolas Cage has a sheet of paper that has a series of numbers jotted down on it that through deduction I guess he figures out um, the numbers point to the date the death toll and the latitude and longitude of the location of where the incident will occur. Hey, hey, the holy fucking Bible, son. <laughs> yeah, uh, this movie, um, not unexpectedly, this movie very routinely teases out its biblical roots. Um, and by the time you get to the end of it, I don't care how much. Uh, how much of a background you have with the Bible or Christianity, you will understand what the movie is trying to throw in your face. <laughs> yeah, um, the Bible thread of this, I it really is kind of shoehorned in here. Like it, you could just take it right out and just come up with something different. Um, because the the ending of this, so these four these four ghost looking dudes that we keep, or one ghost guy is a part of four ghost dudes who are a part of this apocalypse that's happening, basically. But they're aliens that have come to take two two kids apiece, I guess? Uh, it's, it's really weird. Suck my tongue. Uh, it's, it's just... I, that was weird. I don't know what happened there. Um, they're, uh, <laughs> they, there's, they take two kids. They each have a bunny. And they put them on this spaceship, and then they take them to what looks like something from uh, uh, Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion, basically. Uh, it looks like one of the trees from um, oh, somebody who out there is a fan, knows, knows, the air, knows the place, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But it's such a weird ending uh, with the Bible thread. And it is quite blasphemous, by the way. It is, it is very blasphemous. Yeah, uh, on like um, I'm probably gonna be poking you here, just like to suss out all the biblical details here. Because spoiler, uh, Kyle has a bit more of a background with this sort of thing than I do. Sack of shit. Yeah. Yes, I was raised a sack of shit, <laughs> <laughs> a heathenist sack of shit. Um, so there may be some details that I missed out on, but this is so so aggressive with it, so aggressive with the biblical references that even I. He's in a sack of shit. Still picked up on quite a lot of this, but, but yeah, um, the way I understood this is that it is like an Adam and Eve type scenario, and it is quite blasphemous, like it, like really aggressively so to the point that I actually took it upon myself to to find a review written by a, a Christian author, like a Christian film critic, um, because I was very curious what that community thought of this movie. Um, and I was, I was kind of surprised that the, that particular critic—I couldn't tell you their name off the top of my head—but that critic was 
critical of a lot of the elements of the of the film, especially the, the stuff that happens at the end. But his main takeaway was it's not terrible. Like as a film, it's not terrible. It it did irk him a little bit. But his main objection was like maybe keep this one away from your kids uh, because its messaging will will overlap and conflict um, with with their Bible studies. Like like if you are actually actively trying to impart those those stories and those those tales to your to your kids. Don't show them this movie because it will really fuck with them, and it will challenge them in in ways that will probably upset their their learning experience. Well, it it actually offers Christian parents an opportunity to get out of the dead end that is the beginning of life on Earth according to the Bible. Um, sorry, this might ruffle some feathers, but uh, it's been a it's been a long standing joke for a while. It's like Adam and Eve were in the garden together, and then they had kids. Um, they had two sons, and we That's came from it, yeah, yeah. They had two <laughs> sons, and it's just like, but they ended up having other kids. Maybe I, I think that yeah, it's it. It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense that you know that story. But it is in shot. You see the kids being dropped down by these spaceships by a tree, and you're like, oh, it's Adam and Eve. But there's all kinds of spaceships on this planet so it's like oh this actually makes more sense maybe adam and eve were just one of the stories like just one part of that story as opposed to just saying no no no, it's just adam and eve that was it yeah so the movie does explicitly show that um during the finale when nick cage's son and uh, rose burns daughter are both being uh, carried away by the aliens who i guess in biblical terms are angels um, they, even the way they're represented visually in the film, they do have these like ethereal, like semi-transparent wings coming out of them. They're like beings of light that also happen to have these wing-like appendages. They are very, they're very much supposed to be angels. Like even I could tell that. But, but yeah, when the when the ship does eventually take off, we do get a single shot, a CGI rendered, showing the ship leave Earth's atmosphere. Uh, and we do see many other ships from other parts of the globe, like many other ships. So I guess it isn't just singular Adam and Eve. It's many, many pairs um, handpicked by these angel-like alien beings. Um, but like the, the selection process isn't like explicitly told to us, like, like why they pick the people that they do. Uh, we only get to see those two kids. But the movie does like kind of hint that it, it is supposed potentially supposed to be like analogous to faith i guess because remember nick cage's son is grappling with the notion of like not necessarily like christian faith in the straightforward sense but the afterlife like he he is grappling with the idea of his mom has passed away where did she go like he's hopeful and faithful Mm -hmm. that some form of heaven exists whereas nick cage pretty pretty explicitly states he's not he's not willing to go along with that and uh from an acting standpoint i was actually very impressed with nick cage's handling of when he is quite literally left behind um, yeah. it's a good it's a decent little acting moment he, he it does is. yeah it's not too bad it's kind of like mel gibson in fat man where it's just like he has that one little moment. It's like, damn, he actually did really good with that that one little moment. He was asked to do something. 
Yeah, that, that's very similar. Where it, it's it's a small isolated moment in the movie, but like for what it's worth, it's quite good because it, it basically the spaceship takes Nick Cage's son away, and he's like holding his ground and maintaining maintaining his integrity. And then the second the ship leaves the atmosphere, he just collapses in a heap, um, and completely he's just like completely floored by it, uh, such that he passes out on the ground and wakes up in the morning like yeah. that that seems very genuine like to, it's like your son was just taken from you and guess what there's no tomorrow for you and yours yeah. <laughs> like that would be devastating to say the least he goes uh full rapture mm-hmm. um all of the i guess I, I don't know if it's supposed to be the faithful um are are carted away um by the aliens um, and the grand finale of the movie ends up being uh, a catastrophic solar flare, which I did look into this apparently from a scientific standpoint. This is not possible. Um, but the point is, it's a catastrophe that there is no escape from. Like, there is no solution to this. There is no fallout shelter option. It's like, no, y- you're dead. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I don't know why, but... Uh... <laughs> When Awesome Powers was unfrozen, and uh, he's just like, good, I hope those capitalist pigs got it. And he's like, uh, Austin, we won. He's like, oh, hooray, go capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an inescapable inescapable catastrophe. And it's just like, yay, capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the movie ends with Nicolas Cage... Um, driving through the apocalypse essentially like boston is just filled with rioters and fires it's you know this is very much rapture imagery this is like every like the left behind folks i don't think we survived that crash yeah (laughs) Yeah, they did they did not make it yeah no they did not make it and they will not make it but we get this long sequence where nick cage is just driving through the dregs of humanity um, watching rioters in the streets and the National Guard try to do stuff and he uh, goes to visit his his parents and they don't get into it very much but um, he does have a couple of exchanges with his dad where it's it's revealed that his dad is I think an active preacher Yeah. Um, and they had a disagreement a long time ago they haven't really made up um, and this is kind of them making up at literally the last second uh, so it's Nick Cage embracing his sister and his mom and dad um, as the solar flare sweeps across the earth and eliminates humanity uh, as it exists on this planet. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the, the last shots in the movie are uh, showing us that uh, the aliens, the angels or whatever, uh, they deposited Nick Cage's son and Rose Byrne's daughter. Uh, on some distant planet where there is a tree, presumably like a tree of knowledge type scenario, um, and presumably they will fuck it up there too. Because <laughs> um, as far as I know, is, isn't the story of Adam and Eve they fucked up and went against God's words? There's an interesting view on what the Garden of Eden represents and what the devil represents um, within the uh, Church of Satan, which is oh. kind of interesting. But uh, yes, long story short... Um, a snake in the form, the devil in the form of a snake, uh, convinced Eve to take a bite of the apple, and then she convinced Adam, and then God got super angry about that. It's pretty stupid. So you're telling me there's going to be a space devil? Mm. There's going to be a space serpent? 
Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you've seen Event Horizon. Clearly, there's a space devil, and just you know, naked scar scar covered Sam Neill's going to crest the hill and just be like, "Hello, children." <laughs> 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 Which makes you think I'll miss? We ain't got any fucking eyes. <laughs> Where we're going, we don't need eyes. <laughs> uh, are we moving on to signs now? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, we probably right. got a lot more uh, knowing than anyone else on the internet. But yeah, let's move on to signs, which, as, as I had mentioned, was actually the pick of our uh, Super Media Bros pals. Um, but we're going to be talking about here just Kyle and I. So uh, signs, Kyle, uh, you had actually mentioned to me off air that you didn't even need to rewatch this one because you know this one like the back of your hand. The Galleria? Yeah, uh, I, I do know this one like the back of my hand. Uh, this is probably my favorite M. Night Shyamalan uh, movie. Um, I, th- I think this movie completely holds up. I know I'm... This is kind of a divisive film as far as M. Night Shyamalan movies go. Uh, most people say that Sixth Sense, it was all downhill after that. Like nothing has even compared or even come close. Some people are on that train... Uh, some people like the last airbender for crying out loud. I mean, there's those people out there. Um, but honestly, I think he gets so much more hate than he deserves. Um, I, I really feel like people are unfair to him. It's his, like, I like split unbreakable was good. Six sense is great. This is great. Um, I liked his horror movie, uh, the visit it's like, it's a documentary style footage or like a found footage kind of deal. Still really good. Um, and I even like the village. It's got a silly. It's it's got a kind. Of, what's unfortunate about his movies is that typically, if they have a a surprise ending, like a twisted ending, it ruins the rewatch. And I think that this is one of those movies where it there's no twist. It's just a movie, and I think that makes it like you're able to revisit it and actually enjoy it. And I think that's why this is my favorite of his films. But yes, I actually do really enjoy this film. I think uh, I think I might agree with you now. Now that I've rewatched it, like just the other day, um, I, this might be my favorite as well. Um, for a long time, I think Unbreakable was mine, mm. um, but I haven't seen that in a very long time, and I remember that being slower and a lot heavier, for sure, in ways that in the ways that this movie is not. Uh, so I think this one may have actually eclipsed it in my mind upon this most recent rewatch. But yeah, M Night Shyamalan, I want to say. I want to say he fell victim to just the culture of his of his time of of like the contemporary culture to when his films were being released it was because it's around the time when it was very fashionable to do internet movie reviews on YouTube and whatnot. But the general tone of those reviews being posted on social media and on on YouTube specifically in the two thousands in the late two thousands was always negative. It was always rage, over-the-top anger. It was yeah. always blowing things out of proportion and just aggressively attacking and tearing things down. There were very few positive <laughs> positive internet reviewers uh, in the late 2000s, around the time YouTube really was getting rolling. So I want to say it was just the style of the time, where regardless of the, the quality of the thing, if, if a director had tendencies, if they repeated themselves in any fashion as... Shyamalan did kind of like he became known as the what a twist guy thanks to South Park um, I want to say it was just kind of fashionable 
uh, to tear it to tear someone like that down and not even not even pay any sort of mind to the objective quality of the work yeah uh, because like if you ask me i think he's a very talented filmmaker yeah, i think much. he knows how to make a fucking film and more importantly i think he knows how to talk to actors mm-hmm. um, because he he seems to have a very specific vision of what he's trying to achieve with the tonality and with the general vibe of every movie he makes and he's worked with such a wide variety of character like character actors and actors and somehow managed to mold them into whatever he needs them to be in mm-hmm. whatever film he's making from from project to project i do think he's a very talented filmmaker has a very good sense of what he's trying to accomplish maybe that isn't the best thing every time um but just looking at his filmography it's I want to say it's mostly good. Mm-hmm. Um, I I am kind of a Fairweather fan. I, I've dipped in and out of his filmography over the years. Uh, the Sixth Sense, I saw it in the theater. It's oh, fantastic. You got to see that in the theater? Fuck off. I did. Oh. I did, yeah. That... And I was I was young. I was I was like 12, 13. Dude, that, that's a that's a film going experience that you should you should treasure because that's that's pretty incredible that you, you got to do that one oof that it was, is, I'm it was really very jealous. engaging and uh very spooky uh, yeah. the, the girl puking under the table oh dude the out. <laughs> to this day that one gives me chills yeah that is one and of the, the scariest the, things the, the old lady that was beaten on him uh, she was terrifying uh, yeah. Just that 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 adult, you know, coming at a child like that is oh. just like it's, when you're a child seeing that movie. That's particularly frightening. We saw The Visit in theater. Uh, that's oh. one of my favorite movie going experiences. Was The Visit because I, I wasn't expecting it to be found footage. When we got to it, I'm like, okay, that's fine. It's really good, but um, I wanted to leave at one point because it gets tense. Like I'm just like wow. I'm like I'm ready to go. Like we just got to leave. I can't handle this. Like it gets very tense. But there was a, a jump scare in the movie that was like it got us all. But like it went. I might have mentioned this on the podcast before. But we we're sitting there. We're at the Sundance, formerly the Sundance, but AMC. Yeah, down there, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, New yeah. District. And uh, there's like a, <gasps> a jump scare, and um, we all this. <gasps> And then this guy goes, "Oh Jesus!" <laughs> it was really loud. It was so, then, like, then like the rest of the theater started laughing at him. It yeah, was, it, it was a nice, broke the tension. Yeah, it, it was a fun movie going experience. But I'm yeah, I'm glad uh, M Night M Night's had some good moments there. I'm, I'm glad that we've got that. Yeah, no, um, the visit is one that Kyle has told me. Uh, thanks for sharing, by the way. Kyle has told me off air uh, several times that he he liked that one. Yeah, uh, he was like, you should check that one out, Trevor. And I still haven't, uh, as tends to be the case with Kyle recommending anything to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but uh-huh. but I, I saw the Sixth Sense in the theater. I saw Unbreakable in the theater. Um, I quite enjoyed that one. Like I said, for a long time, it was at the top of my M Night list. I saw Signs in the theater. Um, actually, I have a, a cool story about this one, um, not for me, but for a friend of mine. Um, he told me a story about uh, he actually saw signs in the theater by himself entirely blind. He oh. didn't know who made it. He didn't know Ooh. what it was. He just knew the title, and he bought a ticket. So he had never seen a commercial. He didn't know who was in the movie. He didn't know who made the movie or what their reputation was. He went into it completely blind, and it became instantly like one of his very favorite film going experiences um just because it was so and also he happens to i think uh i think he like was a person of lapsed faith himself 
um, around that time as well. Uh, so it ended up being a very interesting film-going experience for him. Um, I have not seen The Village, um, though that also features Joaquin Phoenix. That's an instance of M. Night working with another actor like multiple times. Uh, unfortunately, I've had that one spoiled for me, um, which sucks because I've heard it's not bad. Um, but it's also not regarded as one of his best, as mm-hmm. far as I know. Um, and Lady in the Water, as far as I understand, is the cutoff point. Like that—that's where he enters into he enters into the dark times. Um, it's where things weren't going well for Mister Shyamalan for quite a while. See, the last Airbender is not his style of movie. Lady in the Water yeah. is his style. It is the absolute worst. It—it's absolute garbage. Yeah, I, I have heard it's very bad. There's actually a book. Um, it's like The Man Who Heard Voices or something. Uh, there's a book about the making of that movie that I very much want to read um, because apparently it was a shit show from minute one. Uh, he, apparently he got very big-headed on that one. Uh, he, like, de- I think they de- he demanded they build the set for the movie like within driving distance from his home or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and he was throwing his weight around. Apparently, the whole idea for the movie was that it was uh, a children's like bedtime story or something. Like he wrote the story intended for his children or something, and it goes places that it really shouldn't. Uh, I've heard it's very bad. It's um, exceptional, somewhat bad. divisive. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it's very bad. Um, and then the happening is the one with Maki Maki. Ooh, Ooh. Um, I, I would prefer the happening over Lady in the Water for sure. I mean, at least the happening has him talking to that fucking plastic plant. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a great meme. Yeah, um, that and the ag- aggressive old lady and the guy who likes hot dogs. I was just say memorable moments. <laughs> hot dog guy and definitely the mean old lady. The mean old yeah. lady was actually kind of an un- unsettling sequence. I do remember yeah. that. Um, but I do want to shout out. He does have a new movie coming out called Knock at the Cabin, and it's got our boy Dave Batista. Uh, and uh, Jonathan Groff, uh, who is from Mindhunter, I do believe. Yeah, he's um, the king from Hamilton uh, for the musical theater uh, people yeah. out there. Uh, previously on Catching Up on Cinema in the form of our review for The Matrix uh, Resurrections. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, he was he, the agent in there. He, he was in that. He was in there. <laughs> yeah, like, that's kind of the extent of that. But, well, um, I would say two things. Also, Rupert Grint. Uh, is going to be in Knocking the Cabin. I, I am kind of excited to see that. I think it'd be kind of fun. But apparently, we're wrong about the Matrix, the newest Matrix movie. Apparently, we missed it. We it just kind of went over our heads because I guess really, we're, yeah. Apparently, we're wrong. So, oh, yeah. Well, I haven't. We, you, and I are the only ones that don't like that movie that have seen it. Apparently, I'm not about to rewatch it. Nope, <laughs> sure not. Sure not. But that's interesting. I'll have to look into that. Like, because I. I want to know what those people saw that we didn't. Also, quit fucking around with this Constantine 2 shit. Green like that. Don't give me conflicting <laughs> Don't give me conflicting stories on that. Green light it. Give me Constantine 2. Yeah, you know that first Constantine movie was pretty pretty good all things yeah. considered. Like it didn't need to be good. Like like I I don't think anybody expected it to be good, but then it's like, you know what? That was that was pretty good. Totally, <laughs> I totally liked it. But yeah, I, I was nothing like the comics, but whatever it was doing, I kind of yeah. liked it. <laughs> to to quote my boy Hans Gruber, "Who cares?" But yeah, uh, the last Airbender is probably regarded as his worst. That's the most um, shat upon movie in his filmography. But as Kyle had said, that was a hired gig. 
that was him directing someone else's material. And actually, I've I've heard it said that in a lot of cases that represents uh, Shyamalan out of his element is. He seems to do his best when he's writing his own stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but The Last Airbender is, of course, based on the, the cartoon. Um, and it's also a film trying to tell the story of, like, a five-season-long television series or something. And it sucks. Like, it, it, it's straight up a terrible fucking film. There's nothing redeemable about it. It doesn't look good. It doesn't sound good. It, nothing's there. The performances aren't there. Um after earth or after earth excuse me oh i forgot um, about that dude why did you even bring that up <laughs> that's probably the probably secretly directed by will smith it's just will smith um trying to uh sock puppet his son i uh, make Jaden a thing even though it doesn't seem Jaden ever wanted to be a thing but uh he really gave it a shot um that movie is it's a movie um it's it's trying to be like a kind of like a hatchet style like like a young young boy in the woods adventure story with a sci-fi twist but it just it's barely it's barely anything honestly i saw it on the visit i didn't see it but kyle vouches for it split i quite liked i did um a lot of people thought that as like a return to form Mm -hmm. i did not see glass which i heard is not it's not as good. That's what I heard. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's unfortunate. Um, and old, uh, I've also had that spoiled for me, but I've heard it's. If you can get if you can get on board, it's it sounds like a lot of fun. Act even with it spoiled, I kind of want to check it out just because. I mean, it is based on uh, it is based on I think a French comic or a graphic novel, so it isn't an original idea. Nor is Knock at the Cabin, by the way. That's based on a book. Um, and the movie adaptation, as far as I understand, differs from it greatly. Um, but I don't know. There's something about old that, just on a conceptual level, it sounds like it sounds like material that he would do very well with, because like it has that almost like Twilight Zone episode kind of vibe to it for the concept. Um, so I'd actually like to check that one out. But um, yeah, as far as signs goes, Kyle, like how how do you want to jump into this one? Uh, so I asked my brother. I'm like. I asked him, I'm like, did we see signs in the theater? And I can't remember, but he did just ask me, maybe we saw it in the drive-in. We were going to the drive-in around that time. I do remember. Uh, we saw me, myself, and I, me, myself, and Irene in the dri- at the drive-in. Um, but it is very possible we did see uh, signs at the drive-in. Um, yeah, I guess uh, best place to start with this is, uh, do you want to talk about the characters a little bit? The actors and the characters? Because we got four, four main people. Yeah, that, that seems like a good jumping-off point. Uh, so our film is headlined, of course, by Mel Gibson. Uh, he plays Father Graham Hess. Uh, he's apparently a former Episcopal priest. Um, and as far as... I think his wife died like six months, not even a year, uh, prior to the events of the film. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because this is, this is Mel Gibson, and he, like we've said it before on the podcast, regardless of him as a person as a screen presence the man has presence Um, as an actor he he often delivers and he most certainly does here but what's interesting about the casting here is that he's he's so against type in this for sure like he's so he's so muted yeah Yeah. he's so subdued but it works (laughs) but he even even when he has his moment like a moment where he kind of uh goes a little over the top it's he's kind of the asshole 
and but it's such a good scene just that scene with the kids i think is really good when they're about ready to eat dinner i think everybody just shows up for it Um, but you're right this is a complete like it's it was kind of i remember watching it like this is closer to his payback character where he's just kind of like just going through the moat like just he just as the character is just kind of going through the motions but he's still giving a performance if you know what i mean so mel gibson as an actor um, he has strengths and he has tendencies, just as almost every actor does, unless they're Daniel Day-Lewis, where he literally become, he wills himself into the shape of another human being. Yes, <laughs> yes. He is a cat. He is like a cat. He will fit into whatever object you need him to. He's an octopus man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More octopus than man. Yeah. Um, but in Mel Gibson's case, I, I actually did watch like an hour-long making-of featurette on this movie just because I was really curious. Uh, because, like Kyle, I know this movie really well, even though I haven't seen it in a really long time. Mm. Um, but uh, we talked about this before. That, that I don't know, there's something about those those movies from that time period or from earlier in our lifetimes that just resonated more strongly mm-hmm. um, so i remembered this movie really well i was really shocked um, by how much i was anticipating where i was like i know where this is going and I, I remember these scenes um and i think a lot of that probably has to do with how specific the construction and like the shot compositions in this film are like this feels very handcrafted mm-hmm. um which is a compliment um to to both Shyamalan and his uh his dp tak fujimoto um who kyle you will know from Silence of the Lambs, mm-hmm. and, uh, <laughs> and as soon as you said it, my ear perked up. I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't realize oh, yeah. he was the you cinematographer don't... on here. <laughs> oh yeah, no, he he has a, he has a style, and it is it fits really well for Shyamalan's style mm. in this film in particular. And um, but this, but you say that, but this movie is insanely different. You would ne- I yes. would never would have picked out that that was the same cinematographer. There, there are some shots that give it away, but on the whole, it's just a beautifully crafted movie from a mm-hmm. visual standpoint. Um, but in Mel Gibson's case, what I was getting to was in watching the uh, the making of, in like seeing behind the scenes footage of him, like in between scenes, and seeing him sit down and speak to the interviewers and stuff. I th- I think Shyamalan really like slapped him in the nuts. Like I don't think he was hard on him, but I think he was hard on him. Like I think he, I think he really knew what he wanted Mel to do, and it wasn't necessarily what Mel was most comfortable doing, because he looks kind of jittery and weird on the set. Mm-hmm. Like he, he seems kind of like overly agreeable and and weirdly loose, and I, I think he just kind of gave himself over to the production and just kind of at some point decided, you know, I think this guy knows what he's trying to do. I don't quite understand it, but I'm going to do it because. Mel Mel Gibson has a lot of tendencies. Like the the thing that I always come back to with him is a it's a weird thing, Kyle. But I'm sure you'd recognize if I said it is um in Lethal Weapon One um, when the fella is threatening to jump off the roof uh, and Mel grabs him and and he says to him, "Do you really want to jump? Do ya?" Yeah. <laughs> the thing he does with his eyes, mm-hmm. that thing where he like flares his eyes at people, um, he. Ref- he referred to that as a shortcut in in one of the interviews for the for signs is that he said m knight is really good at at identifying my shortcuts and not letting me take them 
And if you notice, he's not really he's not really doing any of the things that we have all come to know and love from Mel, Mel Gibson's repertoire. Well, so I'm I, gonna say he was really tossed into the deep end, and he kind of he kind of managed to swim, like he, like he stayed afloat. Well, those are actually honestly my least favorite Mel Gibson moments are when he does the crazy thing. I think his best acting moments are not that, and that might have been a little frustrating for him. He might have been able to phone in other performances based on that craziness but uh i would say that those are my least favorite so it's interesting that uh m night Shyamalan was just like you're not doing that here like you're doing something else and i was looking at his uh filmography i'm like um patriot was before this this is closer to his character in the patriot um he doesn't bring i mean he has energy in that movie it's a different kind of energy but he still kind of has like a a guy who's got a a piece of him missing basically like there's just something a little off about him and I think that that's what this... I mean, clearly, he's grieving. Like, he's... Um, that's what he's going through here in this movie. But it's subdued, like you said. Like, it is very much against his typecast. But so, I think so was Payback, because he has zero moments of crazy in that movie. And that's probably my favorite Mel Gibson movie, honestly. <laughs> that movie is fantastic. <laughs> I remember it wasn't appreciated when it came out. Like, mm. a lot of critics felt it was too mean funny mm. enough yeah. <laughs> that's mean man <laughs> that's just mean it's it's a fantastic film um but yeah uh you know uh, did you have something else you want to say about mel gibson because i wanted to pivot to jp oh last thing on mel is just i i think he can be very very funny like he can be unexpectedly quick and very very funny at times and i think that's when i appreciate him most is when he's kind of almost like subtly funny where it's like it takes you a second to register like why that was funny but that just makes it all the better but anyway we can move on to joaquin uh i feel bad for joaquin because i mean two <laughs> two two of my favorite films unfortunately are when he's playing a supporting uh a supporting actor next to an alcoholic australian which is gladiator in this movie <laughs> uh, in the same time period basically um but i think that i love i love joaquin phoenix i i think he's fantastic i cannot wait for his uh ari aster film to come out i'm super excited about that um and i like that he's getting more leading roles uh these days but honestly i think his supporting roles are better i don't know what you think about that See, I'm not super well-versed in his filmography, but I don't think it's a stretch to say he's maybe one of his generation's best actors. For <laughs> um, sure. Like, he, he really does step up to the plate and, and make everybody take notice pretty much every time he shows up. Um, I, Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast has been urging me to check out um, The Master. Oh, quite buddy. A while. Buddy, yeah. that is that is some stellar JP and Philip Seymour Hoffman. Get you need to get off yeah. your ass on that one. I know. Uh, he, Brad pointed to that as being like oh a really incredible performance in a very very good film. Please, yeah, he he got knocked out by uh, Daniel Day Lewis that year, I think, for Lincoln. Uh, you can see he's upset because <laughs> it should have been him. Yes, it's it's a fantastic. Watch the film. Let me know when you watch it, because I'm going to send you outtakes of him and Philip Seymour Hoffman. It is one of my favorite things to watch. It's fantastic. Okay, I'll have to get to that. But um, again, calling to calling on the uh, the knowledge I obtained from watching the uh, the making of on Science, uh, 
Mel was very complimentary of Joaquin, and uh, apparently, in a handful of instances, like some of the more dramatic sequences in the movie, they filmed Joaquin's stuff first. And I want to say that he had the effect of elevating Mel's performance, where it's like it's kind of it's like a put up or shut up kind of situation, where it's like, oh shit, this young buck just brought it. It's like I better do good, otherwise me the guy whose name is on the marquee mel gibson i'm gonna look kind of bad um so in that sense i would i wouldn't be surprised at all if like him as a supporting player is just like a boon to virtually any production he's included in is just because he's secondary because he's not the guy who's selling the movie to the public it kind of forces whoever is to step up Mm -hmm. um and it shows because mel mel gibson really brings it and joaquin phoenix while he is a supporting player in this he's great he's far more he's, memorable he's the more memorable yeah, character for sure yeah he he has a lot of layers to him uh, he's very very funny mm-hmm. um and i think the most important thing though is that he has a lot of layers is mm-hmm. that he like <laughs> i don't think joaquin phoenix has to act to uh demonstrate seething rage <laughs> it's just bubbling beneath the surface i think that's just his default as a person um so that worked out very well in his favor where he gets to be both the funny guy but also the guy who's got some internal struggles going on that are very seldom explicitly explored but they're there <laughs> uh, have you seen that meme of tiffany haddish holding up kevin hart and she's like trying to protect him from somebody uh, it's a really funny, no, funny no, no, meme. No. But that's how I am with Ridley Scott. It's just like anytime somebody wants to bash on Ridley Scott, I'm just like, just back the fuck off. He's done enough <laughs> good that he can do some bad. But I was going to say, Joaquin is the supporting actor for sure in Gladiator, but he's definitely the more memorable person, more memorable character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the more memorable character here. Uh, but I do, I do want to say that he is more or less the lead in The Master. Unfortunately, Philip Seymour Hoffman really does steal it quite a bit because it's just a completely different character but you were never really here is probably my favorite Joaquin Phoenix leading role because um, the Joker can just just eat my ass like that movie <laughs> just absolutely is terrible uh, that movie uh, made made a billion dollars worldwide Kyle yeah there's a lot <laughs> that's of that's why we're getting two that's why we're getting at least one more maybe two um I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about that movie. I do think it's valuable in some ways, but looking at the way it's constructed, it really frustrates me because a lot of times I do feel like they just turned on the camera and let Joaquin do his thing. And it's only by virtue of Joaquin being extremely talented that you even got a movie out of it, honestly. Yeah. And he got that Oscar because he didn't get it for the master because they're just like, Daniel Day-Lewis did a fan. We can't not give it to him, guys. We can't not give it to him. Um, But yeah, so the other little actors in here is one of the Culkins who, again, you just want to fucking Stockton slap. Uh, He really is a precocious little kid that you just you just you just want to hit. Um, that that's the word, man. Ugh. Like I, I cannot abide precocious children. Like, it, it's just in, in cinema, in storytelling. I just, I just can't stomach it. That's why <laughs> I can't watch Stand by Me. It's like one of the worst things I've ever seen. Like I absolutely hate it. Um, oh I, no, you're see, so you're off on that one. 
Because those kids aren't precocious. They are little shits. No, the, <laughs> the, the, the conversations that they have in that film, it's oh, just like, okay. it makes absolutely no sense children would be talking like this. It's just ridiculous. Um, but the, the little girl, like Abigail, is it like Abigail Adams or something? Breslin. Breslin. Um, Abigail Adams, I think, was John Adams' wife. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, she is she is flippin' adorable, like the yeah, the cutest cutest little girl in cinema history in this film. Um, but she also has one of the most unsettling scenes. That's kind of what I wanted to roll into. Was um, this movie is very underrated for its suspense, um, and I really want. M. Night Shyamalan to just dedicate himself to not a found footage horror, just a legit fucking horror movie because he has got the he has got the talent for it. He can do it. He can do a great job with it. Just write a fucking horror movie, a straight up rated R horror movie, sir. Well, I mean, I don't think he's really dipped his toes into that, but The Happening was very aggressively advertised as his first R-rated film. Ugh. Um yeah, I'm actually like I'm I'm trying to pour over my memories and see like what his feelings on that sort of thing are. The visit, because, like, the visit, the visit's a legit horror movie. Like it's a legit okay, scary okay. thriller, scary movie. Okay, because like I'm I'm thinking in terms of I've brought this up plenty of times on the podcast, but like when I think of Christopher Nolan, like one thing that's apparent to me in in examining his movies is that he he doesn't mind action. He doesn't mind he doesn't mind like spectacle and action, but he does seem to have an aversion to violence. Like that just seems to be something he's not interested in filming or displaying on film. Cause anytime there, anytime violence is done to people in his movies, it's never explicit. It's never detailed. It's just kind of like shots fired. Someone falls down yeah, or someone gets hit and there's no like blood spraying out of their mouth or anything. It's just, it's just there's violence, there's action, there's spectacle, but it it's never, fixate upon in any way so i'm curious if like m night Shyamalan, like if he has certain aspects of the horror experience that he's just not interested in um because i i'm trying to think like like what i know of old like if that goes places where like bodily harm is done to people because a lot of times it is strictly psychological in his movies as far as i know it's not necessarily like overtly physical horror like some something lashing out at you and grabbing you and like doing horrible things to you it's more just like the anxiety produced by thinking of what could happen i guess yeah like in like in this movie a lot of the horror content in it comes from two frames of visual information followed by the panic that follows yes. from obtaining that information <laughs> yeah no i think that that's what i'm saying like he does a span, he he does a fan he can do a fantastic job of building tension like i said like six sense like when that movie came out that was fucking terrifying and there's certain i mean like as far as like building suspense and like really leaving an impression on you there are some moments in the visit that are like i said like i wanted to leave because it was so unsettling i'm like he did a really great job of doing that and i'm like he just he has the tools he can do it I just, I just don't think he wants to. He just, he doesn't want to just full out. Of, and it, it doesn't even have to be something like hereditary, where it's just like, yeah, it's scary, but it's not scary in the way you're expecting it to be. You can make a jump scare movie for me, just for a fun movie going experience. I just want another one of those, basically, from him. That's not found footage. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to like actually 
think about that at length. Like, because his his pace does he doesn't seem like his his mo is to keep you in a place of tension forever. Like, because some movies have that that tension release oh, kind buddy. of format to them. But like for him, it seems to be like he seems to be very co- character oriented. We're like, yes, he will do tense sequences. Yes, he will. He'll present you with horrific scenarios. But in between all that, he seems to be very interested in making sure that you understand his characters like from every angle before before you get to the finish line. Dude, there is a good twenty minute stretch near the end of that film where you are in it, and he is not letting you go. Like it, okay. it's legit. Yeah. I guess I need to see the visit then. Yeah, you'll 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 get it once you get there. Like, oh, this is what he's talking about. Okay, this is why Kyle wanted to leave. <laughs> yeah, uh, especially for a theater going experience. Um, gotcha. But yeah, uh, let's let's talk about the 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 way we set it up here. I think this is um, a fantastic way of uh, something that you and I like is getting our creature reveal i think this movie does a pretty good job it's it it's a little bit different execution because it's not you know uh kaiju it's not a fucking giant you know monster that we're getting to yeah. like godzilla or something um but we do he i think he does a great job of burying the lead like i'm not gonna let you see this till the end and it's not even gonna look that great because we do get that one little moment on the on the tv where the the alien comes across but we literally don't get it to the end, and I know that I can. I completely understand the argument that it doesn't look great, like it doesn't hold up. But I'm like, honestly, I I don't have a problem with it. But I think as far as like crop circles, um, him going out in the cornfield at night, that cornfield sequence is fantastic. Just that it that is. whole block right there. Yeah. Um, but I think he does a great job of just like we're gonna build up to something. And I'm just going to let you live with that, basically. We're not going to see it straight on. Yeah, they kind of reveal the alien uh, piecemeal. Uh, you, you do get a full body reveal, which uh, I think Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast has pointed to as being like a special moment in cinema for yep. him. Yeah. The, the 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 Sasquatch, the Bigfoot walk, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the home, the Brazilian home movie footage. Uh, if you if you don't get the reference, folks, um, basically it's the first time you kind of see the aliens from head to toe in the movie it's around the midpoint and it's through like a, a mini dv cam home home video footage of the thing um it was interesting seeing the making of footage because apparently the original um the original way they filmed the alien uh was with a a woman um doing more of an upright walk as the alien like they did the not quite performance capture, but they used her as like an animation template, I guess. Um, and it was determined that it just wasn't threatening enough. Like it didn't give, <laughs> it didn't inspire any sort of terrorist. Like that just looks like a tall lady, a tall skinny woman walking, which isn't particularly frightening. I have one of those that walks through my house every day. <laughs> but, um, but, oh, they're scary. Um, just different for different reasons. That's fine. Exactly. <laughs> but, um, so they replaced they replaced the woman with like a a stunt performer like a burly dude um, and gave him a more hunched over posture that to me I call it the Bigfoot walk because it, it like he even has the one arm dragon behind mm-hmm. him kind of. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, they they revealed that uh, the cornfield sequence, the leg is to me that's just brilliant. That's like the... that's 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 perfect. Like I don't use the word perfect lightly. 
but in terms of amount of visual information imparted and the uh, the confidence uh, that the film uh, exudes like in reference to its viewer is is really strong there because the framing like it's off to the it's like off to the right of the frame and we do a cut from from Mel to his perspective and you just see movement and it doesn't matter if you if you saw any detail or not in fact it's probably better if you didn't but mm-hmm. because it's out because it's off frame because it's not perfectly centered like you the viewer have to struggle just a little bit to figure out what the purpose of the shot is and then it's gone before you get a chance to look back but you don't want to because Mel doesn't want to and you're in it like the movie's got you by the throat at that point and it's just like two three frames of just a little bit of movement it's just like a a rubber alien leg yeah. that looks kind of like a so corn stalk. Yeah. It's so simple. Like you could do that in your backyard. Like it's it's that stupid of an effect, well, but it's used. It's edited and shot really well. We're underplaying the sound design as well because that's oh, such, yeah such an important part of that sequence. It's it's masterfully done. Honestly, like, the every- whole movie, the the sound design in the whole movie is fantastic. For sure, like those sequences when the aliens again we very seldom see them and when we do it's usually a hand or Mm -hmm. a foot or something like that um those sequences where they're stalking the outside of the house or when it's on the roof Mm -hmm. and one of my favorite drops that kyle has uh, where mel gibson runs out of the house and uh tries to tries to be tough guy mel um is that scene if you if you know what i'm I'm insane with anger yeah, that scene. If so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> that, that's a perfect segue into what I think Mel Gibson's strongest uh, attribute in this film is. This movie is actually very funny. This moment, it's th- very funny. This yeah. movie has so many moments of levity, and uh, it, I think it's perfectly balanced. Honestly, as far as like, I, I'm not crazy about the ending of this film. It's fine. Uh, it, it it is. It is what it is, honestly. The movie's so good up until that that I really can't fault it, and it's not a bad ending. Um, it no. just wasn't. It just wasn't my favorite ending of a film. Um, but the humor, like you said, Joaquin Phoenix is very funny. Mel Gibson is very funny. I think it's. It might be his funniest role. I can't think of a, a funnier of a movie where he's been funny like this before. Yeah, he's he is really deadpan and often hilarious in this movie yeah like that scene where i'm insane with anger yeah so funny <laughs> and we're gonna like beat your pre- ass bitch <laughs> yeah and he, and he just ends up he just ends up parroting him like totally lamely and and even the conversation they have before they run out of the house like yeah joaquin phoenix's character is the more he's the more hot-headed character like acting in this fashion comes naturally to him mel gibson's character is a, a former preacher of lapsed faith he's he's not exactly known for calling people bitch I'm, I'm gonna beat your ass I, i'm gonna cre- i'm gonna credit the podcast this i was uh the god-awful movies guys uh did an yeah. episode on this and uh eli had a great observation eli bosnick had a great observation he's like this scene where it's like mel gibson's like how do you act crazy and he's just like if there were any two actors who didn't need to be told how to act crazy (laughs) it was mel gibson and joaquin phoenix i'm like that is a great observation like it's kind of funny hearing mel gibson how do you act crazy uh yeah i don't know (laughs) do you want to use the cell phone i think you got it dude well, see that—that's a compliment to the performances, though. Is that like this normally would be firmly in their wheelhouse, but it's like, for him to be so awkward about it, and it's, for him to like 
beat by beat, like, what do you mean by that? How do you do that? (laughs) I love that moment. One of my favorite moments in the film is when they chase, they go around. Like, there's definitely a shadow. There's definitely something out there. And then they end up coming around the house and meeting each other. And like, where'd they go? He's like, I cursed. He's like, I heard. It's really funny. (laughs) But then they hear a noise and that, that shot of Joaquin where the camera just follows him moving back and his eyes are just like... I, I don't think that's the, the guys that we think it is. I think this is something else. Like, that's a really good... I actually just got goosebumps thinking about that. <laughs> like, legit <laughs> thinking about that scene because it, it it adds to the suspense quite a bit. Yeah, I'm not positive who would deserve the most credit for it, but, like, so much of filmmaking is about information and withholding and revealing like determining what the viewer needs in this moment and to get the best effect from it. And scenes like that are an example of withholding visual information to greater effect. Very much. Where the, I mean, the, the phrase is often show, don't tell, but sometimes it's in your best interest to not show anything um, or to show something unexpected. So in this case, we get a few shots that through the visual language of it, we're told those two men saw someone on their roof jump from the roof, which is over 10 feet above them, and then run directly into the cornfield behind them. And we don't see any of what, of what they saw, but we know, we know what they saw. And just the reaction to it and just how incredulous they are does a lot to, I don't know, create tension and to also impart to the viewer that like, if we ever run up against these things, um, they're they're quite physical. <laughs> like maybe be concerned about that because yeah. I, I think they could take Mel. Um, <laughs> so it's very interesting that they do that. And also, uh, when we do get to the finale, the way that they shoot around the not so great effects of the alien mm-hmm. shows a lot of restraint. And in that instance, I feel like they did it correctly. Where it's like we're not going to shoot the thing dead on like for close-ups or anything we're largely going to use reflections and and shoot find ways to frame the thing that aren't revealing every warp and and ugly nature to it mm-hmm. um yeah i i love the family dynamic too of this yeah, uh, yeah it's great because uh if you haven't seen signs uh you should but yeah just <laughs> how it, it's it's not like laid out to us directly like we kind of it's kind of pieced together it's like the mom's passed away and joaquin is his brother who's come to help him basically like kind of help him through this time and he lives in the apartment above the garage he's also a smoker he's definitely smoking a cigarette before they they go in uh for their for the final stand basically um but yeah the uh I think the them going into town is also pretty fun. Him going to the recruiter's office. I love that army dude, that general. Oh that's, my god! I, I had to look him up because he is the secret MVP of this movie. It's um, he Ted sticks Sutton. Yeah, he sticks out because it's such. You, you should be out there getting your toes licked by beautiful women. Like it's such a funny. Just, just him perpetually having his mouth open. Just yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's just, it, between every statement, he just kind of has his lips puckered out, and he never shuts his fucking mouth. I don't think he blinks in that entire monologue. Yeah. Um, so if you're not aware of what we're talking about, um, folks, uh, th- there's a scene, a very crucial scene, actually, in this movie, mm-hmm. where uh, it's becoming concrete 
like it's becoming known that the aliens are here like it's a thing like there there was a portion of the film where everybody was in doubt it's by this time that it's pretty much confirmed um and uh officer paskey played by cherry jones i called her lady cop um <laughs> she uh advises mel uh pastor mel to uh go to take the family to town get everybody's mind off of things and it is worth noting that this film began shooting like the day after 9-11 mm. um it's kind of interesting how the timing of that worked <laughs> out because you it doesn't it's not much of a stretch to kind of draw some parallels between between some of the atmosphere the goings-ons in this movie to you know post 9-11 immediate post 9-11 america um anyway um she tells them like go to town like take your mind off of things it's like yeah pretty sure a lot of uh, that's how, how a lot of these situations are handled by a lot of ordinary people is just like you know take like a horrible thing is happening Dude. currently but not here. So how about how about we just pretend for a minute that it's not happening for those, because it's not happening here. For anybody who wasn't alive or old enough to remember the aftermath of nine eleven in America, you all it was all it was on the news for like a year and a half, maybe two years afterwards. Like that's all I can remember was everything after that was just like constantly on the news. Um, we, I don't remember what we watched at that time, but it was just the news was always on everywhere you went. Um, it was a crazy time in American history. Um, but yeah, uh, the uh, I, I like the. Unfortunately, it's kind of the 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 son, the the youngest kid, is kind of like the plot device where he's just like kind of telling them exactly what the aliens are gonna do, which I think is one of the one of the weak aspects of the film. Um, but I do like how it it devolves from like he's the one who's just like i think i know what's going on and then joaquin phoenix like there's the scene the 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 little uh tinfoil hat moment where (laughs) all three of them are sitting there watching tv and uh it's just kind of funny joaquin phoenix is like totally sucked into the tv watching it in the closet uh he's like i want to keep away from the kids um it, it it really is it really is a funny movie but um this you want to talk about the uh the final scene with them. Oh, I did want to mention something real quick. Um, the we we get little snippets here and there of. All right. My wife is back. I've passed off the little dog. <laughs> um, we've gotten little snippets here and there of uh, of the night that uh, his wife died, and that's just something that we are like getting closer to and closer to and closer to. Um, and he ends up having the we get the full scene later in the film. I think it's right right at the very it's end. At the end. Yeah. But there was something so chilling about the way they shot that moment between he his wife and him. The way she's laying there and she's like ghost white. It was very it was very unsettling scene. Yeah, uh in watching the making of it was actually kind of interesting. Um and I think it reinforces my theory of uh, Mel being tossed into the deep end of uh, having some of his uh, tools taken away from him very early. That was the first thing they shot. Oh, no shit. Um, the first yeah, thing? The first thing they shot. So M, M. Night wanted to uh, disarm him immediately. Interesting. Was, you know, I have this big name actor who has a, a big reputation in Hollywood. I'm kind of the new kid on the block. Guess what? We're going to do your hardest fucking scene 
first thing out the gate. Interesting. Um, and it works out really, really well. Um, it's a very well-crafted scene. It's delivered to us piecemeal um, in three different strokes. Um, we get flashes to it. Um, so we get, like, first flashes. I think it stops with a lady cop telling Mel that uh, your wife's been pinned to a tree. Um, and then I think the second flash is... Uh, informing him that she is not going to survive and then the last the last thing that happens at the very end of the movie is the full reveal of the conversation that they had um when when she was pinned to the tree she got hit by a car she got hit by the director (laughs) (laughs) so if you haven't seen it i think it's scary movie three or four it's scary movie three i believe but they parody this scene and it is it's brilliant it's pretty great it's charlie sheen and uh the lady from the practice, I can't think of her name. Um, uh, she's playing the lady cop, and then the wife is Denise Richards. It's it's pretty funny. I, I can't not think of it uh, <laughs> when I think of this movie. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's very well done. But um, I wanted to mention uh, one other one other scene that's really good. It's the the Joaquin and Mel Gibson having that moment together with the kids uh, asleep. Yeah, with the TV. Yeah. On. So I think that scene. That scene also replays during the finale, um, and I think this is a good way to try to wrap the whole thing up in mm-hmm. a neat little bow. Um, so that conversation is about uh, basically these two characters are brothers. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix is the younger brother to Mel Gibson's older brother, and they've been sitting on the couch with the kids uh, all night watching the news, just taking in. The alien invasion through their television set. Um, and now the kids are asleep, and the two brothers are sitting there. And Joaquin is like straight up asking his brother to comfort him. Like he's straight up just saying, "Like I'm scared, rightfully so. You're <laughs> you, a man of the cloth. Perhaps you could offer some comfort. Anything, anything." Um, and remember, this is the younger brother asking the, the older brother. In traditional dynamics, that's that's how that works. Is the the older one looks out for the younger one, and Mel has this. There's this back and forth that it goes a couple of different directions. It even uh, spirals off into levity for a minute, where Joaquin gives his interpretation of all things happen for a reason, yeah. <laughs> where he tells a story about he was going to make out with this gal, and then he had gu- he realized he had gum in his mouth. He's like, oh, I better spit that out before I make out with her. Sure enough, she ended up puking all over the floor while he was spitting out his gum. So had he not been chewing that gum, he would have gotten puke in his mouth, which would have been traumatic. Yes, very <laughs> so much. So that's his way of trying to, you know, you know, get a get a chuckle out of himself, you know, like like bring some levity to the room. But then Mel counters with when he's asked, like, what kind of person are you? And I think if memory serves the idea was there are two camps there's the people who have faith and believe that whatever they're faced with someone something has their back mm-hmm. and then there's the other camp who it's more just anarchy and chaos nothing happens for any sort of reason and there's no one looking out for you so that's that's kind of a core thread in the story of of both the character and the movie is will you walk into will you walk into whatever situation awaits you knowing like with a degree of certainty that there's something 
with a plan that is looking out for you or will you go into it believing wholeheartedly that it's just you like like you, you don't have anyone in your corner whatever you face it's just going to be you versus that um and the the character that mel is during this sequence is very much the, the latter mm-hmm. like like he he has zero faith at this point um and through the the course of the the last act in the movie we do see that restored to him um the turning point is when uh rory culkin's character who by the way isn't he like on top of the world right now because of that uh show the... I, is that the same culkin i don't know if that's the same culkin there's too many damn Colkins. There are many, <laughs> he's not lying. There's way too many damn Colkins. I think that that's a different it, Colkin, but I it, could be wrong. Is he the succession Colkin? Because one of them Colkins is on that show, and that show got the ba 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 thing. It's the same. So you know, it's a big deal. I think this, if it's the same one from Scott Pilgrim, let's yeah, see. I think so. I don't think that's him. That's not too the, many damn Colkins. That's not the. That's not the succession one. Okay, well, never mind. We got the lesser Culkin in this film. Yeah, for real. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, the the scene where uh, his faith kind of is restored to him is when his son is having an asthma attack. Mm-hmm. They're hiding in the basement because the aliens have actually broken in. Um, and he has no tools at his disposal other than faith and, and patience. Um, and kind words, uh, because his asthma medication, his rescue inhaler, is not in the basement with them. Somehow they forgot it. Um, what did you think of that sequence, Kyle, where he's cradling him and kind of nursing him back to health, just, like I said, through kind words and patience? Um, I think the the dinner scene is probably my favorite like emotional moment of the film. That was really good, yeah. It, it's really good. Um but yeah, this this sequence is uh, it's 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 good highlight for for Mel Gibson. Like he kind of is like stern towards walking. He's like, "Don't touch him," and he's just having this moment with him and God, basically. Um, but yeah, it, it is it is a, a nice little scene. Um, but unfortunately, it suffers from the the uh, the effects of the time where it's like Dad, and it does like that wobble. Oh no no no! Two different scenes actually. Which one are you talking um, about? You're talking about the very end. Yeah, yeah, yeah very end. When when they're in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, um, so this is when this is before they get outside. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is before they dispatch the alien. So basically, he's he has his son sitting in his lap, facing mm-hmm. away from him, and he's just kind of talking him through it. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's a good scene for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, what I liked about it was it's prefaced by him straight up telling god he hates him mm-hmm. uh, he's, at first like if you take it too literally it sounds like he said he's telling his son he hates him right. <laughs> it's just kind of funny to think it's like you're dying and your dad's telling you he hates you yeah. um but what i liked about the way it was shot in particular is like it's very well performed by Mel gibson but also the way it's shot is a lot of it is just joaquin's phoenix re- joaquin phoenix's face uh reacting yeah um to witnessing it and it, you can see the, I don't know, the relief and the elation on his face in seeing his brother kind of restored to who he, who he knows him to be. Yeah. Um, prior to his his wife's passing, and also prior to that scene, there's also a couple of episodes where, um, kind of out of the blue, when they're boarding up the house uh, to attempt to keep the aliens out, um, there's these moments where he. Ugh. 
yeah he stops to comfort the kids like i said it it feels a little out of the blue it's a little schmaltzy honestly Um, but basically like you can hear aliens breaking down boards and stuff and trying to get in the house and his focus pivots from boarding up the doors to comforting his children by telling them stories of when they were born yeah and i think Joaquin Phoenix's character, he's they're like, What are we gonna have for dinner? He's like, Well, we need to eat quick. And he's just like, No, 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 we're gonna have a full spread tonight. And that's Joaquin not thinking like this is this could be the last he's like, that's not even a thought in his mind. And um honestly he'd probably help save them because of that because he had that in mind. And yeah, and the Mel Gibson's just like, Oh, when you were born, you were so pretty. I'm like, dude, board up the fucking windows and honestly he's the reason why the aliens get in probably. Because uh, they forgot their <laughs> they forgot their foil uh, their foil hats. Um, yeah, they can read our minds. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, like I said, the 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 suspense of the basement is really good too. But um, I guess the I guess the final scene where uh, we have it's almost like Jurassic Park where it's just like, oh, we're inside now. We're we're gonna be safe again. And then, uh oh, yeah. Very similar to Jurassic Park, actually, now that you mention it. Um, it is worth noting um, the uh, producers on this film. So this was a Buena Vista uh, production, Touchstone production as well. Um, our producers are Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who, if memory serves, have quite the connection with, I believe, both Spielberg and George Lucas. Mm. Um, yeah, Uh the the finale of this movie like the soundtrack um is done by a criminally underrated uh composer james newton howard um i really love his work he's been putting in work for decades um he's he's a fantastic composer he's worked with m night Shyamalan many times his score for this movie is tremendous um uh, yeah the open the credit uh, sequence is amazing the, the, it is and uh, it was really interesting to to hear him talk about uh his his idea for the score in his head was that to open the movie the way they do with just blank titles and music like it comes at you hard yeah. like like the the music comes at you aggressively and they do a cute thing where they're dropping the titles from the credits in time to the music like in time to the percussion it's very cute but what's really cool about the theme of the movie is that it's it's just this simple like three note piano riff that serves as like the core melody for the whole thing but it's incredible. It's so simple that it's also incredibly versatile. So it's also useful in like uplifting and, and calm moments, but it also can like really get your nerves like spiking when things need to get tense. But by coming at you so aggressively in the first minute of the movie, in the first second of the movie with the soundtrack, it's a uh, planting the seeds like some subconsciously uh, in the viewer's mind that this piece of music will return at some point. This iteration of, of the theme of the movie, which is in the whole movie, is going to come back. Like, it's not just going to be the title. It's going to be in the movie somewhere. And it, it, it puts you on edge, like, some part of you on, on a subconscious level is going to be anticipating it. It's like, the movie's going to get there at some point. Like, it's the energy's going to get there. And sure enough, they save it for the finale. Um, but it it reminds me of... Uh, John Williams's uh, finale piece uh, for Jurassic Park, pretty much from um, it's going to break through the glass mm. uh, to when the T Rex shows up. 
Yeah, it's pretty much just one long piece of music that the the final the finale piece in this movie kind of has a similar yeah. vibe to it. Yeah. Which, like I think in this case, this one piece of music actually carries through from from the finale of the movie all the way to the credits. I like I think all the way through the final shot of the thing. But yeah, it's actually kind of funny how it lines up slightly. Like they're not the same thing. It's not a one to one. Yeah. But it it does kind of feel kind of similar that way. Um, I, I'm going to get personal on this one. Um, this this moment, and I think one of the reasons why this movie holds up for me uh, mm-hmm. is um, this this scene where we finally get the um, basically with this conversation with his wife, and he's just like, she's just like, tell the kids this thing, this thing, and she says, tell to tell Meryl to swing away, and he explains it off as like, oh my. Uh, she was just like thinking about one of your games, basically, and he's realizing now. It's like no, she's saying, "Take the baseball bat. It's the only weapon in the room, and beat the shit out of this guy." Um, my uh, my grandfather passed away in uh, two thousand seven, two thousand eight, right around there. And um, weird thing, my grandparents, my mom's parents, my dad's parents live next door to each other. So you can oh, literally, wow. yeah, you could walk, walk just, um, it was just a little field in between, but it wasn't even a 30 second walk. Um, <laughs> you could just walk right, right down there to see them. But I was living with my grandmother at this house and Nick was living with my grandparents down there. But my grandmother woke me up one morning and she's like, you need to go over to your grand grandparents' house. Um, your grandfather's passed away. Um, but I would go over there to visit up until then. Like, I'd always go say hi. And my grandpa would always, uh, every time I'd leave, my grandpa would say, all right, see you later, Kyle. He'd always say, see you later, Kyle. He'd say the same thing each time. But the last time I saw him, he goes, take care of yourself. And I, it was very strange. And even at the time, I, it just seemed very odd to me. I'm like, he never says that. And that was the last time I saw him. And he had passed away after that. Um, it, it It always struck me as very strange that that was he changed the way he said goodbye to me, but he'd also, when he had said goodbye to me for the last time, he'd had a triple bypass and he passed away from complications from that. So I think he had had a bit of a scare in his life and he, you know, he was just maybe just thinking that maybe something bad could happen. But it it, it was just, it was just one of those interesting moments where it's like kind of parallels this film where it's just like swing away. Like it, it doesn't really make sense in context and it's kind of a weird thing to say, but then when it happens in the film, you're like, Oh, she was telling me something. So it was just one of those little weird moments in my life that I can kind of connect to with this movie. Wow. Yeah, that, sorry if that got too real. <laughs> no, no. Thanks for sharing. That's yeah. that's. I mean, that's sad, but at the same time, that's that's something for sure. Yeah. Um, um, anyway. <laughs> no, but I mean the a big thing in the movie, and and like regardless of your like you the listeners feelings on this sort of thing like a a big not necessarily reveal i guess but like the the core story of the movie is kind of things happen for a reason Mm -hmm. like the the title of the movie is signs and all throughout the movie we've had these signs um of seemingly innocuous details adding up to something consequential and meaningful so we had kind of hinted the swing away thing earlier in the movie when Mm -hmm. they're having that conversation on the couch and mel gibson's character like explicitly writes it off as her brain chemistry was failing her and somehow her memory put that image in her head she thought she was at a baseball game watching 
her brother-in-law. So he just hand waves it away as like, ah, it's, her, her brain was borked. Like, that's what yeah. happens before you die sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, it wasn't sort of any sort of omen or prophecy or anything like that. But all throughout the movie, we've been seeing uh, all these quirks and like character flaws in, in this family mm-hmm. <laughs> that are, are humorous uh, all throughout the movie that end up playing a key role in saving the family unit yeah um in in a very crucial moment um so the big finale of the movie is all of these seemingly innocuous threads and character (laughs) traits uh coming together to form voltron in the form of a baseball bat and a glass of water it is so cute the just all the glasses of and like you can't come down on this girl like she's she's too adorable he's just like yeah you can't contaminate yeah boo boo, you can't do this like what's wrong with this one she's like it tastes funny like oh my gosh (laughs) Like you just have to. She is so cute. That's like nobody ever gets mad at her for it because how could you? (laughs) She turns around and gives this adorable performance in this movie, and then she gives one of the funniest dance numbers I've seen in a film in Little Miss Sunshine, (laughs) which she prefaces by, "My grandfather taught me how to do this. He's strapped to the hood of our car. He's dead." (laughs) it's such but that was what i was getting at with my sorry with the heavy story about my grandfather was just like you could read it as one way it's like oh this was kind of an omen and like this is what was meant by this to also you could logically think something traumatic has happened and yeah it's just the body reacting kind of thing yeah yeah i mean regardless he said that to you whatever it whatever it actually meant or what the intent was it doesn't nice. matter. It happened. Yeah. It was a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the 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 quirks. Uh, I'll just list them off. Uh, so we have this final confrontation. We have a one on one with an alien. Mel Gibson's character actually did have a confrontation with a couple of aliens throughout mm-hmm. the movie. One spooked him in the cornfield. It, they were on his roof at one point. Um, he paid a visit to our director, M. Night Shyamalan, who plays the fella. Uh, who killed his wife um, because he fell asleep at the wheel and pinned yeah. her to a tree with a with a truck or an SUV? Um, is that some manslaughter, Kyle? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's uh, I believe that's manslaughter, but I think it's it's up to one uh, the prosecutor if they are going to mm-hmm. press charges. Yeah. Um, and I think it might be also up to the family whether or not they want to press charges. Um, seemingly, the well, person's pa- character doesn't strike me as the type that would sound no. to prison. Yeah. Or- that yeah that's a legit i had a um had a cousin who ended up accidentally hitting a buddy of his and there was no oh my god yeah, there was no uh there was no court case because nobody was pressing charges because it was i yeah. mean yeah it's like yeah. that that's that's not gonna accomplish anything yeah what are we, what are we doing here He's, yeah i'm pretty sure he feels pretty terrible he feels like, bad <laughs> yeah i'm pretty sure he's undergoing his own form of punishment it is there. kind of shocking um that we do, so this is something that I, I, I do want to talk about this. Um, M. Night Shyamalan likes to put himself in his films, and <laughs> the times that I can remember him in the film is he's the exposition in the village, he tells you the whole story, tells you the <laughs> whole thing. Um, that movie's got other problems, I, I like it, but it, it's definitely been pointed out to me other flaws in that film. Like, yeah, you're right, fuck, god damn it, yeah. Um, but this one is probably the most needless. Like it, it doesn't. He doesn't really add anything to the story. Um, he, all he does is just say, "Hey, I'm sorry about that." 
Um, I'm going to go to water because I don't think they like water, even though Earth is 70% water. I don't think they like water. Yeah, worst alien invasion in the history of cinema. These guys are like, dumb. The, <laughs> the the least coordinated invasion in in cinema history. Like, yeah, I, I know it's been said on the internet countless times, yeah. but when, if you take two seconds to think it, about it, it's, it's Trevor. <laughs> it is a pretty glaring flaw. Like it's it's right there. Yeah, it's like you know, even without the water thing, it's like you were going to invade this country. With close range gas weaponry and no armor, I, we got a lot of guns, man. It's a problem. It's what, a problem without aliens. <laughs> what are they gonna do when they get to Florida? Like the humidity alone <laughs> would kill them. Like it's like, oh, yeah. <gasps> what, the f- <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, <laughs> be taken out by humidity and reggaeton. Yeah, <laughs> and anything else. Ron DeSantis. Oh. Um. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, he uh, one one small detail I picked up on here that it's such a small detail, but I kind of appreciate it was. Um, by the way, uh, folks at home, if you have a thing about violence done to animals, specifically dogs, um, it's not it's not really on screen, but there is some dog trauma in this movie, a lot of it, in fact. Yeah. Um, so be wary of that. Yeah, um, I know. I know a lot of folks out there that is like a no-no. Like yeah. that's not something they can tolerate. So just fair warning. Um, but what I thought—it's a small detail, like I said. But what I thought was actually kind of neat was um, the problem with their German Shepherd is very early in the movie. Um, like it, the dog is exhibiting violent, aggressive behavior, and they can't quite put a finger on why. And when they're trying to figure out what to do about it, uh, Mel Gibson says to his son take it to see the doctor and he's like doctor's not a veterinarian he's like we'll do it anyway and m night Shyamalan's character is a veterinarian mm, so he's I like he's like that, yeah we're not taking the dog to the vet like we're taking him to the doctor because i'm not taking him to the vet because i don't want to see that guy <laughs> yeah and and of course that moment again it probably works better because the director's not an actor and he doesn't have any lines for that scene at the pizza parlor when they see him mm-hmm. and Mel Gibson just doesn't want to do any, he, he can't, he's paralyzed. He's just yeah. like, I'm going to eat my pizza. Like there's nothing to be said, in, especially in front of the kids. It's not a bad moment. I don't think it's a bad acting no, moment no. in the car at no. all. It's just, it, no. it didn't need to happen. It, it didn't, but I, I want to say that's a, degree of hubris uh creeping into the film a little bit remember this is his third hit in a row this movie did very 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 well at the box office and also it's worth mentioning that um since the the sixth sense um a lot of critics were referring to him as the new hitchcock like hitchcock's name was tossed out there constantly and it's well known that hitchcock had cameos in basically all of his movies as, as far as I know, it was very subtle cameos. He was just like a shadow or a shape in the background of shots. He didn't yeah. do this kind of shit very often, if at all. Um, but I want to say that may have played into it just a little bit as well. If you have time, check out um, Mel Gibson's Oscar acceptance for Braveheart. Uh, it's pretty good. Best director. It's it's pretty good. It's I nice. can't recall what that was. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it here. It's it's pretty funny. Um but yeah, was there uh, was there anything else for science? Just walk through that finale real quick. So, um, just to point out all the details, like all the things everybody listening to this already knows. 
Uh, so we have a situation where Rory Culkin is being held hostage by an alien in the living room. Uh, the reason they didn't see it is because the aliens have the ability to camouflage. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it's demonstrated is kind of akin to like an octopus almost, where it, it just it takes on the pattern uh, of whatever it's standing in front of, kind of. Um, there's a there's an interesting shot that I didn't really recognize when I used to watch this movie on VHS. Um, there's that shot where um, the daughter is screaming, and you can see her face on yeah. its back, like because she's like standing behind it or something. I didn't I couldn't make that out on VHS, but watching it in HD now, it's like, oh, that was clever. Shame I couldn't see it all those years, <laughs> but. Um, all the all the quirks line up where we do get that callback to the swing away. So uh, Joaquin Phoenix is armed with a baseball bat, and um, through that conversation with the uh, army recruiter, uh, we learned that he was quite the athlete, but he had a temper on him, and he had a bad tendency to swing at every pitch. Yeah. Um, so he not only had a lot of good positive records in the minor leagues he also had a negative one in the form of the most strikeouts <laughs> of any player uh, with a career of that length um but he knows how to swing a bat real fucking hard and that's all we need today um, so he he brings the bat to bear but also the uh, the kids uh their failings their quirks also come into play here where Rory Culkin is spared a horrible death uh, because he's in the middle of an asthma attack and his airway is closed when the alien's weapon, its its gas, is sprayed into his face. So if he didn't have asthma, he probably would have breathed it in and died. And then the other thing was that uh, Abigail Breslin, Bo, uh, the little girl, she has that tendency to place uh, half drank uh, cups of water all over the house and we've seen this we've seen the seeds planted for this all throughout the movie um, so when it's when they discover that water is harmful uh, to the alien physiology uh, everybody just kind of gives them gives each other a look and it's just like well our living room is basically just one big minefield now isn't it yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, so the alien is dispatched through a combination of blunt force trauma via baseball bat and uh, a glass of water pouring on its head, mm-hmm. which melts its face off screen, essentially. But yeah, uh, Rory, Cor- Rory Culkin survives, um, and uh, Mel Gibson's faith is restored. And one last small detail that I'm curious if you can offer any commentary on is uh, the last shot of the movie calls back to the first shot in the movie. And I'm trying to figure out if there's any symbolism behind it. So the first shot of the movie is from, like, the second-story bedroom window in the house. And it's looking out onto, like, just, like, the picnic area they have in front of the house. So it's, like, kind of looking out onto their yard, essentially. And the way it's framed, it looks like we're just looking out on the yard, but then the, the framing adjusts slightly, and we see that there's a pane of glass uh, separating us, the camera, and the view that we're looking out on. The final shot of the movie is through the same window. It's basically the same shot, but the window is broken, so there's no barrier anymore separating the camera and the view that it's looking out on. And then it pans over across the house, and we see snow falling out the windows, signaling the passage of time. And then Mel comes out with his collar back on, so his faith is restored, and he's a practicing preacher again. I just 
I, I'm talking, I'm just telling you what the shot was and trying to think on the fly of what it perhaps could mean. Um, like the, the inclusion of and the removal of a barrier. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it has some kind of, it definitely has some kind of meaning, but off, like from the hip, I don't really have anything. I'd have to kind of sit with it for a little bit. Um, I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I, I, in mentioning it now, I can't really think of a clean meaning behind it, but perhaps it has something to do with like a, I don't know, like a, a handicap or something where Mel Gibson's character is hamstrung in some way. Like he's not, he's not fully engaged in his life, I guess. Like there's a separation between him and fully engaging in, in his family and his life or something. And then now that the barrier is removed, he can return to who he was. Yeah, like being trapped by grief somehow, and now yeah. the window's yeah, broken. Yeah, sealed, sealed off from, from himself or something. Yeah, now that it's broken, this was the, like, literally aliens breaking into the house and them surviving was him breaking through, more or less. But yeah, I could see that along those lines. Um, I'll allow it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, hopefully this was a, a fun conversation about signs. Um, I'm actually... I'm going to have to ask uh, the Super Media Bros why this would qualify as a guilty pleasure. It's I, th- I don't know anyone who doesn't like this movie. I think it's kind of, it just, it it takes time. Like, remember it was not cool to like Titanic, and then you go back now as an adult, and you're like, Titanic is amazing. Like, it's truly incredible. You just had to let uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio get a little older and get a goatee uh, for you to really appreciate that film. Or say, like, oh no, it's, it's an amazing film. Yeah, no, I mean... Uh, Young young boys of a certain age weren't allowed to like yeah, Titanic. For sure, you were in, not allowed in this to like country. It. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's a James Cameron film. Nine times out of ten, it's pretty great. Yeah, no, and and these days you're absolutely right that that the stigma no gone. Yeah. we don't yeah, care anymore. There's no stigma anymore. People just accept Titanic as a pretty good film. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's excellent. Still trying to get the girlfriend to watch that. One She's never seen Titanic. I've been. I, I know. We almost watched Titanic two nights ago because I'm like, oh, three hours and fifteen minutes. I'm like, fuck. Like, yeah, that's our whole night. But I re- I'm really, really wanting to rewatch it. Well, I'm running low on brownie points to cash in because I've mm. been having her work her way through the Rocky movies. Oh, you uh, piece of shit! <laughs> hey, hey, Creed Three is coming oh, out very man. soon. I don't she's even want to watch. She's got to know why she's got to care. I don't <laughs> even want to work through those films. And you're you're gonna lose it, dude. You're gonna bone tomahawk yourself, man. You're gonna do what I, I, know. I did. I'm probably I'm probably negative brownie points at this point. <laughs> give her something. Give her something good. Like have her watch the Birdcage or Titanic. Yeah, something like that. Uh, give her, give her something good. I have to watch so many shitty rom coms. Mm. <laughs> so oh. many episodes of Chuck. <laughs> I had to watch one last to get night back with... into the green or I the to, black. I had to watch one with Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher last night from 2022. It's oh, that one is on deck. I don't remember the name, but she has mentioned it at the breakfast table. You could do worse, but it is in no way good. But Steve Zahn is in it, and he's funny. So that is... Aww. Yeah. I at love they, Steve Zahn. At least they did that. Okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll cling to him. I'll just yeah. wait for him to show up whenever I get bored. Yeah. 
Uh, but, but yeah, I, as I said, this is framed as a cult cinema showdown episode. It's not. It's not. Um, it's science. Science, science is the winner. It's one hundred percent the yeah, winner. Science. Science wins. Not even close. It, it, it's not even a fair fucking fight. No. Like, it's like, um, yeah. So science wins. Uh, knowing is not very good. Although I wouldn't say it's terrible. It's just not we, a very good movie. We picked a, a an arguably iconic director's one of his best films, and then a director you've never heard of, and an actor whose filmography is pretty... who has, a, has decent films in his filmography. One of his bad, bad, bad films. Yeah, it was, it was a no-brainer. It was clearly science. Yeah, no, this, this, this was not a fair matchup. Science yeah. wins, yeah. so showdown complete. But <laughs> that being said... Um, uh, hopefully next time around we can have uh, the Super Media Bros on the show uh, for a discussion of some other Guilty Pleasure films, but um, this has been kind of our uh, tribute episode to their Cult Cinema Showdown format. Um, if you'd like to check out The Real Deal, uh, you can find their show on pretty much every uh, podcasting platform you can imagine as well as the uh, Odd Pods Media Group, and I believe they have their own website, uh, so by all means check them out, but in the meantime uh, if you'd like to catch up on any of our Catching Up on Cinema content, uh, you can find that on our website at catchinguponcinema.com. Uh, you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the Twitter, at Catching Cinema, as well as the Instagram, at Catching Up on Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Uh, and the podcast is available on pretty much every podcasting platform you can imagine, including Bitcade. So fucking google it google it that being said thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time and what the hell is that smell